Hi, this is Jalen for Dobbs, where tire buying is easy. At GoToDobbs.com, shop brands, sizes, pricing, and our amazing deals. With 40-plus locations, get same-day install. For tires, it's Dobbs. For deals you can use, click on GoToDobbs.com now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Most likely, you might see them like the Blues this year. They might have to sell for the first time and not, not make the playoffs. On the ground, McMahon boxes. Everybody's safe. Oh, a gift for the Cardinals in the seventh. And Goldschmidt's coming up with the bases loaded. Thank you. Ball four, a bases loaded walk. And how about this opportunity? The former Rocky, Nolan Arenado, could turn the game around with one swing. Swing, drive, Cardinals won't fix this thing because they're just not that good. They're just not that good. The 0-2 pitch is on the way. He got him! What a win for the Cardinals! We are back, baby. We are back! We are back! Classic! Audio courtesy of Valley Sports Midwest, and they are back alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Boys, I've been waiting for this moment since the moment that I woke up this morning with my alarm clock that I do not have on my phone. Hit the music, T-Bone. This magic moment. That was awesome. I loved that game. Everything about it, from the start to the finish, the comeback, everything about that game was just miraculous. For it to happen the same day where Vic called in and he said, hey, this team's going to be selling by the trade deadline. Just spectacular. Alex, at what point did you think they were coming back? Because I know for damn sure it wasn't when they had the bases loaded. Did anybody in here actually believe that they were going to come through in that moment? Is that the one that Nolan Arnold? No, yep. Yeah, no, I thought Nolan Arnold was striking out. I did too, mostly because BK was like, this is it. Yeah. This is it. BK it texted like us in, in the text chain. He texted us in all caps. Remember this moment, T-Bone. Tweet out my comments right now. They're, this is they're coming back. I was like, oh, they're so going to lose. I this know, is either going to be Arnold strikes out, the base is loaded, or the Rockies are going to walk this off in the ninth. I was totally Laura prepared. Or was going to like challenge something, and it was just not going to happen correctly. No, the moment for me was Brennan Donovan's catch. When Contreras struck out, I, I was a little worried. I'm not going to lie to you guys. Like, they tied it, and Wilson Contreras struck out. BK's like, oh, shoot, I should have texted that to the group. I was like, oh, damn. They're, they're for sure going to post this as a BKO. This is definitely coming back I, on me. I I had the screenshot ready to go. I would have loved it. My my moment when they were coming back was Brendan Donovan's catch. The Brendan Donovan catch in left field, to me, was a moment that 
not to comp it to hockey, but it's that bounce that you're waiting to get. And when you get it, you're like, oh, now we're starting to get some luck. That catch by Brendan Donovan was like, all right, now we're starting to get things in our favor because last uh, two games ago, three games ago, that ball was going over the left fielder's head and it was going to be a base clearing hit. Yeah. Because that because of Alec, Alec Burleson. Yeah. Sorry, That's not Alec. a shot at him. He's just, he doesn't have the speed to be able to get to that but ball. Brennan, like that's definitely getting down as at minimum a double. Brennan yeah. Donovan making that catch was the moment that I said, yep, they're going to win this game. I, I felt like they were going to win it when Arnado had the double because it just felt like that moment of, okay, there we go. We finally got that hit that we were looking for. And then when Donovan made the catch, it, it certainly solidified it for me. So I, I, I felt like now that you finally saw the power coming from them, I'm not going to lie. It took a lot of uh, optimistic thinking when Michaelis gave up like six in the fourth inning. But I, I do think once Arnado hit the double, it did just feel kind of like, okay, there we go. That's the moment that you needed. And it came not from a kind of a – complimentary piece of your team but it came from one of your superstars on your team and and Arnado to me had he'd been playing well but he hadn't had that kind of there he is there's Nolan Arnado the guy we thought could win an MVP this year that was the moment and the moment he hit that double and I know the game was tied at that point I just felt like okay there's no way they're gonna lose this game and if they do man we're in probably for a long month because they're not gonna be able to recover from that kind of a moment I did have the tight cheeks when Arnado hits the double Contreras strikes out on the very next at bat, and then you've got Hennessy Cabrera coming into the game. Like, not gonna hey, lie, Hennessy has been locked in. He actually has. I thought he pitched really well yesterday. Circle of trust moment. T Bone hit the no, open. No, 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 no. We're not going that far oh, yet. But oh, I, I thought he looked good yesterday. I, I'll give him his credit. The velocity was there. The swing and miss stuff was there. Hennessy Cabrera pitched really well yesterday, and I will give him his kudos for that. But the moment where I really felt like, okay, they're locked in, this is going to happen, was the Gorman home run. When Gorman ambushes that first pitch and he's able to send that one out, it was like, okay, this team's ready to go now. Then you get the Donovan walk, the Edmund bunt, the Goldie single. Like Suddenly, it looked like all of the at-bats were like, oh, okay. You guys have the pressure, the, the monkey, the proverbial monkey on your back. Like it finally, the the pressure did not seem to be weighing on them the same way that it was previously. You guys want to hear what it was like for the Rockies to live through that comeback for the Cardinals? Womp, womp, womp. I pulled the Rockies calls of the Cardinals comeback because I wanted to be able to relive that moment once again. You love people being miserable, don't you? God, you make me want to root against the Cardinals. Here's what it sounded like on, uh, I believe this is AT&T, Colorado. This ball hammered to left, and it is at the base of the wall. Two runs he scored. Goldschmidt getting a green light, and he scores to tie it up. We're trying to get Nolan, and he slides back in safely, and it turns into an absolute disaster. Four runs it scored, and it's a whole new afternoon, evening, if you will. 6-6, and this ball is pretty well hit left center field. And it is caught out there by Donovan. A leaping catch. And if he doesn't make the grab, that's probably a triple. Strikes with it and jumping on it right away and hitting it out of the ballpark. It's Nolan Gorman, 7-6 St. Louis. And the Cardinals led early 2-0. Then looked like they were hopelessly out of it at 6-2. Now leads 7-6 in the ninth. You can just feel the air coming out of the building for all Rockies fans. It was it was a glorious night. It felt great for me, for you, for T-Bone, for all Cardinals fans. 
And it sounded like a Cardinals home game at times during that one out in Colorado. Ollie Marmol talked about this after the game on how the Cardinals were able to put the first 10 games behind them and now they're starting anew again. The first 10 games aren't exactly what we wanted and you, you get 16 10-game sprints in a season and uh, the first 10 is behind us. Now we go. You're now 4-7. and seven. You got the same record as the defending National League champs in the Philadelphia Phillies. All right. We're right back on track, boys. Get a win today. Get back home. Go up against the the Pittsburgh Pirates. We'll be back about 500 by the end of the weekend. And you know what? They got the perfect guy on the mound tonight it, or today to uh, put this team back on the right track. Yeah. Right? Jack Flaherty yeah. in Colorado. Yeah. yeah. Can't hit the strike zone. Yeah. Hitters park. Hey, our offense can hit on the fifth worst team in the National can League. They? Unless his name is Herman Marquez. Oh. Well, you can't hit him. He's Speaking an ace. Speaking of hitting, the power was the difference maker yesterday. We talked about it during the show yesterday. The Cardinals had not been hitting for power during that seven-game stretch where they were one and six. They had basically the same number of extra base hits in that seven-game stretch as they did in the first series against the Blue Jays. Yesterday, you finished with the two doubles, and you get the three home runs from Gorman, Yepes, and Tommy Edmond. This team cannot, and really all of Major League Baseball, you just can't win by hitting singles regularly. It, the, the pitching is too good around Major League Baseball right now to consistently win by going station to station. You got to have the extra bases or you have to be an all-time great running team when it comes to running the bases. Stolen bases, first, third, all that stuff. This team's pretty good on the base paths. They haven't shown it a lot this year, but they've got the athleticism. It, they're, they're not going to be able to win that way. They've got to slug. And they're constructed in a way where they should be able to slug the ball. Goldie, Arenado, Contreras, O'Neal, Walker, Yepes, Gorman. These are all guys that at least have the potential. Oh, Carlson to hit 15, 20 plus home runs in any individual season. They're going to get there. Last night, they finally were able to show some of that power. And that was the real difference maker for them, especially late in that game. Yeah. And I mean, the power that came into it, but it was the depth of the lineup. Once again, that showcased it for you. I mean, you're talking about impactful at bats by a Jordan Walker who gets on base with that single. And then you've got the Nolan Gorman home run. But before all of that, the lead up to the home run was the ability and the walk by Brennan Donovan. And then Tommy Edmond being able to get on base, although it was an error, the speed of Tommy Edmond is part partially the ability for him to get on base and cause that error. So the the length of the lineup is what disappeared for a stretch between Atlanta and Milwaukee. And it showed up against Colorado. Now to the point that I was making earlier this week of like, yeah, I don't, I I don't want to get too excited when you beat a team that's a bottom dweller, but that does feel like somewhat of a slump buster for the Cardinals. Yeah. Yesterday needs to be the jumping off point. Now, Colorado's weird, man. And this is one of those things where, like, people are texting in right now. Hey, guys, what about the starting pitching? Even Michaelis wasn't very good yesterday. Agreed. He he wasn't great. It's Colorado. He's never been good in Colorado. That is historically a ballpark that just he goes there to get his pitchers destroyed. That that's the way that it's gone for him in his career. That was one of his, if not his actual best start, one of his best starts at Coors Field. The same could absolutely happen today for Jack Flaherty. That is not something that I'm going to get super worried about, but your offense has to do what it did yesterday. If the other team, if we're going to say, hey, they're going to be able to take advantage of the elements, you should be able to as well. And that's where I will give the Cardinals a lot of credit. The offense came through in a way where they needed to them to yesterday. If you get into a slugfest, this is a team that should be able to win those kinds of games. 
You need to be able to make up for that lack of pitching right now with your offense. And in that seven game stretch, they didn't. They scored four, one, two, zero, six, one, four in that seven game stretch. It's not good enough. The offense was every bit as liable for that one and six stretch as the pitching was because this is a team that is constructed in a way where they're going to need their offense to be able to come through yeah and when you're not slugging the ball like the Cardinals hadn't been you don't have those overwhelming innings that really just kind of feel like those snowball effects and the Cardinals have seen that on the other side of things where their pitching allows extra base hits you see innings get away from where five spots get thrown up I mean look at the inning that Miles Michaelis had where the Colorado dropped five on him that was two extra base hits at the minimum with two home runs. So without being able to slug the ball, you don't get that inning that can kind of be the, whether it be a momentum swinger or the final nail in the coffin. So it was good to see him get back to that slugging because like you said, you're going to have to slug to win in the modern day. Otherwise, the singles aren't going to work. Even though stolen bases are up, it's still too tough to try and score runs by just singling and then playing small ball to get that run across. He's Alex Ferrario. That's Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie coming up in about 15 minutes or so. Craig Berube previewed the offseason for both Robert Thomas and Jordan Cairo yesterday when he joined the fast lane. We'll let you hear what he had to say about them coming up at 1130. But next, speaking of Miles Michaelis, his night was a tale of two different stories. It was really one inning that got the best of them. What happened? How does he get that corrected? We'll talk about it next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. I didn't pitch as well as I'd like to or probably as well as anyone would have liked me to, but some days you have bad games and I don't get the win, but the team does. And I think, you know, at this point in the season and the way we've been scuffling a little bit out of the gate, I think that's just the most important thing is we got to win today. The hitters showed up. We got some, you know, we put a good late rally together. That's that's great for the offense and we played great defense and my pitching will come around. I've been making good pitches and keep doing what I'm doing and I'm, I'll have some good results. That was Miles Michaelis after the game last night. Audio courtesy of Valley Sports Midwest alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. It was really a tale of two stories last night for Miles Michaelis, Alex. It was the first four innings and then it was the fifth inning. But let's only talk about the first four. He gave up five hits, one earned run. It came on a homer, three strikeouts, one walk, and had thrown just 58 pitches. Like, all right, it's kind of cruising here a little bit. Great stuff. And then you get into the fifth inning. Five hits, including a double, two home runs, five earned runs, gives up the walk as well, and he throws 30 pitches in that inning. It looked ugly for Miles Michaelis. Somebody on the text line said, yeah, BK says that the pitching wasn't great, but he also wants us to look at the back of the baseball card and totally disregard what we're seeing right now because that doesn't matter what they did in the past does. First of all, true. Second of all, what you saw yesterday for Miles Michaelis was a reflection of Coors Field. That happens sometimes, man. I, I didn't think that he was bad yesterday. I also didn't think he was great. I'm not going to sit here and be a fraud and tell you that, hey, you know, Miles Michaelis had such an awesome day and he deserved so much better. No, he, he wasn't great yesterday. I think he'll be a lot better, though. He said yesterday after the game that he, he thinks that if you continue playing the way or pitching the way that he did yesterday, eventually the results will get there. He basically compared it to a blackjack game. Alex, I know you're a big blackjack guy. When you're playing blackjack, you don't just randomly change the way that you're playing because you're behind. That's a surefire way to start losing a whole hell of a lot of money. You play by the book and over time you get your expected win results. 
that doesn't necessarily mean that every time you sit down at the blackjack table, you're going to win like 47% of the time uh, of the time or whatever it is. No, the, the expectation is sometimes you win a lot. Sometimes you lose a lot and it ends up typically coming out somewhere in the middle. That's where Miles Michaelis is at right now is he's trying to get to his level and it has not gotten there yet. Yeah, I mean, it hasn't. And to be frank, there's been signs of it that you say Miles Michaelis is getting there. My biggest concern with Miles Michaelis is that one blow up inning. And when the one blow up inning comes for Miles Michaelis, he can't limit it to not do enough damage that the Cardinals are looking at a massive hole. And that's what last night was. And frankly, his previous start was that way also, where it was good, it was smooth sailing, and then one bad inning, and you're thinking, how are we going to dig ourselves out of it? And the one thing about Miles Michaelis is, and I know he gave up 25 of them last year, but the home run can be a area that plagues Miles Michaelis because it just seems to be the dagger to where you give up a base hit, you give up a walk, and then boom, three-run home run. And Miles Michaelis has fallen trapped to that a couple it hasn't, of times. Though, really, in his in his history, it has this year. Like his his home run rates this year. 2019 was that way though. Yeah. It felt 2019 was like every game where he had a bad outing, it was three-run bomb, two-run bomb, and you're thinking, what is going on and right it, now? And to that point, that series had the ERA of, of beyond four, yeah. and. and I, I think if Miles Michaels has an ERA above four, look, it's not a awful season, but it does change the trajectory of the Cardinals just a little bit because you thought Miles Michaels to be this kind of maybe not as good as last year, but slightly around their three five ERA guy going to cover 180 innings. But if the ERA takes an uptick just enough to where it gets past four, again, he's not a bad pitcher, but he's not sitting in that two three. He's more of a number four, and I think it just changes the trajectory of the Cardinals season by a little bit. I'm not saying the Cardinals go from a 97 win team to oh my gosh they're going to win 88 games because Miles Michaelis ERA is in the four. No, it just becomes a little bit tougher for him to be, go out there and become an innings eater for the St. Louis Cardinals, which they need him to be. And I, I thought the difference for him last night was I thought his stuff looked good early on, but again it comes down to the pitchers in the Cardinals rotation so far. It's been a struggle with their fastball commander in this case his sinker he said after the game you know i lost command of my sinker and he had to turn to a slider well in Coors field that's a recipe for disaster and you saw that happen in in person yesterday because the moment in that inning where he gave up the home runs i think both were to sliders if i'm not mistaken so i i think it, once he gets out at Coors field i thought yesterday was a sign of hey things are really going to turn around for miles michaelis because he he looked good in the first handful of innings until he lost command of the sinker i, I think that will change I, I think part of the issue there was getting gas maybe a little bit, playing in the high altitude, and then your slider's just not going to spin the way it does when you're at a mile high. Yeah, Miles Michaelis has pitched in five games at Coors Field in his career. Those five games have gone a total of 18 innings. He's given up 44 hits, nine home runs, 26 earned runs, and he's walked three. Like His results at Coors Field are just ridiculously bad. He has a 12.8 ERA at Coors Field in his career. It was never going to go well yesterday. None of us expected it to go well, and then that's exactly what we saw on the field. So, I expect- oh, yeah. Oh, Make stop talking. Woo! All right, we got a righty on the mound. For the Colorado Rockies, if you're not familiar with the game, we like to call it the lineup game. Nobody else on this station has ever played such a game, but we do. creative. Especially when there is a day game here for the Cardinals. Alex, it's a day game. Brandon. We got Jose Urena 
on the mound for the Colorado Rockies. He's not particularly good. He is a right-handed pitcher, though. He has a 14 ERA on the season. Cardinals lineup should have a lot of success today. Hot damn, he's got a 14 ERA on the season? It's not what you Cardinals are going to get. No, that's Michael's <laughs> numbers right there. That's worse than Michael's numbers. I don't think that was possible. I don't think that you're going to see Brendan Donovan get another day off. I would assume he's going to be leading off. Do you agree? Yeah, I agree with that. All right, so we're one for one. Do you keep you don't keep Tommy Edmond in the two hole here, right? No, not against the righty. I would go Alec Burleson here. Got a day off yesterday. I would assume he's going to be right back in there today. God. Yeah, I guess I have to agree with you on that one. All right, two for two. Goldie, Goldie Arenado. Somebody's a D. One of those two is going to be a D. My guess is Arenado's DH. Goldie was a couple of days ago. Yeah. Okay, so Goldie Arenado. I love gold. Now let's go Arenado here. I think Arenado is your DH today. That would be my guess. So unless let's Wilson, keep that in mind unless, when it comes to what we're doing the rest of this lineup. Unless Wilson Contreras is. Possible. I, I think they're going to get him the day off because you don't have a day off tomorrow. If there something. was a day off tomorrow, I think you'd see him DH today, get a full day off tomorrow. Okay. So then my guess is Contreras is not playing today. Okay. Well, then Kisner's obviously hitting in the five hole, correct? No. Nine. <laughs> <laughs> I think okay. Gorman is batting fifth. I, I was going to say and Gorman I think or O'Neill. I would go Gorman here. I think they're going to split up the right-handed hitters. How do you feel about that? I don't like it, but we'll go with Brandon. What the H is wrong with you guys? Tyler O'Neill. Is Contreras DH? Maybe. Do you want to go Contreras? God. You might have been right. Yeah, let's go Contreras. Wilson! Wilson! Okay. Wilson! Wilson! Can, can you tell us? Are we? Do we want to find out now if he's the DH, or we got to keep moving I can't forward? Tell you. No, we got to keep the going. Name of the game. Stupid. All right. So this is this Tyler, is Gorman. This is Gorman. Yeah. So then O'Neill. Oh, this is a question. Do you think they're or giving Carlson. Walker his first day off? No, not with the hit streak going. Well, Ali even said a post game last night. He said he's taking good at bats. We're going to keep this rolling. I don't think you're you're not giving him the day off. Think it's O'Neill or Carlson in center today? They said yesterday that Carlson was still getting treatment for and his I neck. And I felt like O'Neill had a good at bat. Go O'Neill here. Four. Yeah, I'll go O'Neill here. Okay. So then this is Jordan Wall. I, I don't see him having a day off. Walk it like I talk it, talk it. Walk it like I talk it. Hey. Walk it like I talk Johnny it. Walk it, walk it like I talk it. Nice. It gets the hips moving. All right, Edmund said uh, at shortstop. Or is this Kisner? Nah, Edmund. So Wilson's not the DH. Uh, or are you going to say ninth. Brendan Donovan's going to be? Kisner's going to be batting ninth. I thought we were at the ninth spot. We're at eight, right? No, you're at, no, nine. We're at nine. We are? Walker was eight. Who the- Donovan Burleson. Are they going Contr- Goldie Arenado, Contreras. Gorman, Tyler. Okay. Gorman, wow. O'Neal, uh, Walker. I, I guess Contreras is catching today. I guess they really want this win. <laughs> Got to get a series win. So show me Edmund. You're wrong. Okay. So, so Edmund's not Kisner. playing today. Kisner's playing today. And you got Donovan at shortstop. I'm very curious to see how they constructed this lineup. Ooh. So who are you going with here? Nine? Uh, Kis- Kisner. Uh, Kisner. What a shame. Mm. Oh, God. Is Taylor Motter back in the lineup? Oh, God. Taylor Motter. You hit the nail on the head. Really? God, what a 
What a terrible really? lineup. Today's, no way. Today's no. starting lineup. I don't this is how you. they lose. In There's the, no way. In the series finale against Colorado, Brendan Donovan will lead things off at shortstop. Alec Burleson bats second and left. Paul Goldschmidt at first base. Nolan Arenado bats cleanup as the DH. Today, Wilson Contreras will bat fifth as the catcher. Second base, Nolan Gorman. Seventh center oh, fielder, God. Tyler O'Neill batting eighth. The right fielder, Jordan Walker. And batting ninth, everybody's favorite, the third baseman, Taylor Mo- <laughs> Modder. Modder at with third Jack base? Flaherty on the mound. Okay, hold on. Can we talk about this? Modder at third base? What's your issue? What do you mean, what's, what's my issue? What's your issue thinking that this is a normal lineup? I mean, Modder's better than Kisner. On the Juan back Yepes. side, yeah. Why isn't Juan Yepes in the lineup today? Eh, you know, he only well, hit a home run yesterday, and he didn't run to second base hard enough. He should have had a oh, double. Yeah, he was I, I ask it. this in all sincerity. Is Juan Yepes going to be on this team no. after the All-Star break? Juan Yep. Oh, like via trade? Yeah. Like, th- this team clearly does not value him the way that we thought. Because otherwise, he would be starting today at third base. I'm not telling you he's a good defensive player. He's, he's well, not. neither is Taylor Motter at third base. Th- this is kind of weird, right? This is absolutely weird. I, because can, even, even so, like, it, let's like, take the Juan Yepes scenario out of this. I would have more so thought Nolan Gorman was going to be playing third base and Motter would be at second base. Yeah, I, I, I think it's twofold. One, I think it's a lack of trust with Juan Yepes, probably defensively at third base. And two, I think it is... I. I do you think they want to see more of Motter? Because I, I think they're hoping that maybe they, he can be the reason they don't bring Paul DeYoung back. I mean, Paul DeYoung is 1-for-12 in his rehab stint, and he had three strikeouts against Memphis yesterday, and he did not hit the ball well when he was in. Couldn't I, I think, argue that I also want to see what Juan Yepes can do for that exact same role, know, and then eventually I, I when Newbar gets back, you send Taylor Motter down, and then when DeYoung's ready to go, you just DFA him because Juan Yepes has captured that role. I want to see what he can do I don't defensively. Think, I don't think they view him as a third baseman. I, they saw it last I, year, and I don't think they liked it. I don't either, but I think that he's better. When you combine his bat plus his defense, I think the end result is better than Taylor Motter bat plus defense. You know what? I'm infuriated with this. I'm infuriated with this, and I'm going to tweet Katie Wu some very angry tweets. She's not even there. Doesn't matter. She... She knows. Tweeted to Derek Gould. He's, no, he's the only no. Pete writer there. Right she now. understands the frustration when it comes to lineups, and this is a bad lineup. A- am I off base here? No, because I'm confused by it. And why is Taylor Motter getting any at bats over Juan Yepes? They obviously love Taylor Motter. Yeah. They obviously I, like Taylor Motter enough. Why? I don't think they what have. Li- they I, seen from Taylor Motter to suggest that this guy's going to be a good MLB player? His at bat two days ago with the bases loaded? Yeah, it was a swinging strike. It was terrible. Have I you just seen his I, hair? I think they view it as, we okay, we need to get Arnado off his feet, so we'll put him at DH, and then who do we want at third base? We don't trust Yepes at third, so we trust Modern more. So well, then we'll put where him in the do lineup. you trust Yepes? That's the DH. thing. <laughs> but there's no spot for there's him there because spot. you're rotating Contreras and Goldie and Arenado as your right-handed hitters in that spot, and then when you go to a left-handed hitter against a right-handed pitcher, it's always Nolan Gorman, which isn't inherently a wrong way to go about it, but th- there's no spot the dude hit for Juan Yepes if this is the way that you're going to be treating hey, it. Don't the dude hit the one of the man. three. No, you're defending Taylor Motter right now. You're not the messenger. I'm not you're defending the, you're Taylor Motter. He just wants to be right. It's yeah. all he wants. His T-bone three has to be correct, and it's a terrible T-bone three. I, Nolan Gorman looks like an all-star, okay? So calm down over there. That's the only one you got right. So Nolan far. Gorman looks great. And I, I also think that base. Juan Yepes in his three games so far this year that he's appeared in, is four for 12 with the home run and what should have been a double yesterday. Meanwhile, Taylor Motter is striking out in 40% of his at-bats. 
Like, which one of those guys am I trusting more? There's been one hard hit ball by Taylor Motter, and they're living off of that with the belief that, oh, Taylor Motter might be better than what he's been for his entire 10-year major league career. Hey, they're he's doing 33 that years Hicks old. Too. He's older than Alex. Hey. True. Man, you're old. Yes, I am really old. He's got better hair. than That's a lie. My hair is so much better. There, there is no upside to Taylor Motter. And this is not a shot against him. I guess it is. <laughs> this, but, this is an entire Taylor Motter bash fest. Yeah. But this is no shot against Taylor Motter. Juan Yepes is 25. Last year, we saw that he had legit 15-plus home run power. And he finished the season as an above-average major league hitter. Yeah, he's not great defensively, but he has real pop in that bat. And in the minors, he's shown consistently, regardless of the level, the dude just rakes. And that guy can't get an opportunity at this level it, this year. It's weird. Yeah, it's Yepes, really weird the way they're treating him versus Taylor Modern. It does not make sense. Will be, I, I'm starting to believe more and more he will be traded by the end of this season. I hear what you're saying. You're wrong. No, we're right. Taylor Motter, Ollie's home wrong. run today. Bet on it. I will be very curious to see odds. what the explanation is on why Taylor Motter is in the lineup over Juan Yepes. Him getting opportunities over Yepes is criminal. Coming up next, Craig Berube previewed the offseason for Thomas and Cairo. We'll talk about it next here on 101 ESPN. All these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario Podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. That's Tanner Hendrickson, and I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Alex, all season long, we've been talking about the evolution of Robert Thomas and Jordan Cairo. Both players uh, had up and down seasons, I think it's fair to say. Defensively, I'm not sure that Thomas took the step that the team was hoping for, and Cairo certainly defensively did not take the step that they were looking for. He actually took a step backwards. Yeah, he was uh, doing the Michael Jackson <laughs> reverse. <No more. laughs> uh, Jordan Cairo, though, has 37 goals, and Robert Thomas has 63 points in 71 games, so there is real reason for optimism behind both players' seasons. Craig Berube joined the fast lane yesterday, and he was answering a question on what the next step is for both of those players, but when we heard this, Alex, both of us had the exact same reaction. Ah, that's the off-season plan for both of those guys. Yeah, I think leadership for sure is part of the next step. And, um, you know, if you want to be a leader, you got to play a certain way and you got to lead, lead by example. And I think that they got to take the next steps and with their game, managing it better, uh, doing what's best for the team um, at the right time. You know, that might cost you some points because you're playing good defense and you're sacrificing. It's all about, you know, giving, you know, giving more and taking, taking less, right? And I think that's part of uh, growing as a player, um, a young player and an offensive player, is uh, giving more and taking less, and um, that'll that'll make them better leaders. And that'll that shows leadership, 
you know, by example. Yeah, uh, let's read between the coach talk that was Craig Berube right there. He's essentially saying you need to be more responsible with the puck. You can't be a liability on the ice because if you're going to be our $8.5 million players next season, the highest paid players on our team, we are going to be going to you on power play, on penalty kill, late in games when we pull the goaltender, and we need you guys to be the focus of what everyone else is watching on the ice. Even if Robert Thomas doesn't get the letter C, maybe that's Braden Shen, who I believe will be the captain after this season. It's going to be on those guys and how they perform on the ice and take that step from being a younger player in the National Hockey League to now you're one of the vets. I didn't pull the audio, but I had a great conversation with Bill Guerin on Saturday on my pregame show. Uh, of course, the general manager for the Minnesota Wild, and I asked him about you know young players like Jordan Kyrie and Robert Thomas in that transition and he said all I can do is speak from experience and he said when I was a player and I played on the roster with the New Jersey Devils that had guys like Scott Stevens and Ken Danico a a team that was always going for Stanley Cups he said at one point I looked at myself and said I can only be a rookie for so long now I need to take that step into a leader into an NHL vet that's what Craig Bruby wants from these guys starting as soon as the season ends with their off-season workouts, leading into training camp, and then to once the regular season begins. Yeah, we've talked about it in the past. You know, you don't need Jordan Cairo or Robert Thomas to become the best defensive players in the National Hockey League. You just can't have them become liabilities all the time out there on the ice. And that's where that kind of the not only just taking the leadership role, but also growing and playing that 200-foot style game and setting an example because that's what Craig Ruby wants to see is more more less of him having to get on Jordan Cairo or Robert Thomas for not playing that 200-foot game and it just becoming kind of natural for them back-checking all the time and giving 100% going back there. So that's their next step because offensively they've both got the talent. I mean, we, I mean, you look at Jordan Cairo, if he gets three goals, he's at 40 this season in the last two games of the season. It's just getting rid of some of those lackadaisical moments where uh, Craig Bruby has to call him out, whether it be publicly in the media, having the shouting matches at the bench, or just getting into them in the locker room. Those are just the moments that you cut back from, and Jordan Cairo's up on that next level to where we're not looking at a season where he has 70 points and going, man, it feels kind of like a disappointing year for Jordan Cairo. No, you'd be looking at going, man, Cairo had a really good year, both defensively and offensively. He was one of the best in the National Hockey League. Yeah, I I continue to be a little skeptical of all of this. Like, I, I don't think, I think Jordan Cairo is probably going to be kind of like Yakub Verana in terms of what he is as a player. Where early on in Yakub Verona, I'm sure the Capitals were saying the same things that we're saying right now about Jordan Cairo. Now, obviously, there's off-ice stuff that plays into this with Verona, but they probably said, man, look at all the speed that this guy's got. Eventually, I think he could be a pretty good defensive player. And it just, it never happened. He, he's just a really good goal-scoring producer, and that's who he is as a player, and they accepted it. And now he's on his third team. But I think with Jordan Cairo. If he is simply a below average defensive player, like just not a complete liability every time that he's on the ice, that's pretty much what I'm hoping for with him. Because right now, this year, there have been moments, Alex, you've mentioned them, we've talked about them on the air, where it's like, yikes, that that guy can't even be on the ice in a high leverage situation because of how bad he is in certain moments defensively. Robert Thomas is the one that I'm really curious about. I think this is a big offseason for Robert Thomas, man. People have talked about him as the future captain of the team. I hope they don't do that, honestly, because I feel like this year the pressure of the contract got to Thomas and Cairo a little bit early on in the season. 
I do think there's real pressure that comes along with having the C on your chest. I, I think it's symbolic more than anything, and I don't think you need that symbolic pressure on Robert Thomas. I think he needs to go into next season just ready to play his game. So put an A on his chest and let him go out there and be be the presence that we've seen from him in the past. I hope he plays a little bit more free, and he is the guy that does have the upside of being a full 200-foot player. I don't feel like there have been as many moments this year where I say to myself, ah, okay, I get it. Penalty kill, all situations, really good defensively. Everything about it makes sense. Robert Thomas is as good as expected. I think he's taken a little bit of a step back defensively this year. I think his offensive game's been as good as ever. Defensively, though, I'm not sure he's been as good in his own zone. And that is something that going into next year, I would like to see him improve upon. Yeah, and that's how he goes to being the next like a a top 20 center in the NHL. He's got that capability and it it requires him getting better defensively. And he was that guy last season and he wasn't this guy this season. I think a lot of that has to be just this in-between period that a lot of players were playing at for the length of this season. And some of it is injuries with Robert Thomas. I know Joey spoke about it, that he's been dealing with something that's kind of nagged for the last few months. And it's just a matter of fighting through that. I'm with you. Don't give him the C. He's 23 years old. That C, there's so much more that goes into it. And I know a lot of people say like, ah, the letters mean nothing. It's more you're a leader with or without the, the, the letter. But it's more of the off-ice stuff that you're going about with the letter C of, you know, dealing with the media media. responsibility. And it's also some of the charity stuff that you're doing with with fans and things like that. And and sometimes guys who have been in the league longer know how to manage that. Other guys who, like a Robert Thomas is 23, is still learning the ropes of the NHL. It, It just depends on if they feel like he can handle that. I just the way I view both of those is they're elite players. I, I mean, both have the potential to be a hundred point players in the NHL, especially now where I think there's twelve guys that are going to finish the season with a hundred points in the NHL. Like that's the trend the NHL is going. A lot of offense, but this team is going to very. This team is going to be in purgatory in a in a circle of just the same thing over and over unless both these players take a step forward in terms of how they possess the puck, how they control the puck and where they put the puck. And if you're doing that poorly, like you've done this season, you're going to be right back where you were next year. Like you were this season. That's Alex Ferrario. He'll be on pregame coverage for the blues. Final home game tonight. Pregame starts at five 30 puck drop right here on your home for the blues coming up after that. One Oh one ESPN is where you can go to find that game coming up next. Three, one, four, three, nine, 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 six, four, six is the air comfort service. Next slide for questions and answers here on one Oh one ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe. It's BK and Ferrario's questions and answers. Brought to you by Insperity. Do HR issues have you boxed in? Expand your possibilities at Insperity.com. Nine six four six is the Air Comfort Service X line for questions and answers. Let's start with this from the three one four guys. Should we take what Tampa Bay has done so far this year seriously, or should we look at the Rays the way that we're looking at the Cardinals right now, as if it's just a short sample size and eventually they will come back down to reality? You should uh, definitely take yeah. it seriously. Like the Rays are very good. They were my pick to go to the World Series this year from the American League. I don't think they're going to go undefeated. <laughs> like, what? 162 and 0? I, I don't think that is likely. They're 11 and 0 right now with a plus 63 run differential. If you if you think that's sustainable, like God bless you. But yeah, I, I think eventually they will allow 
you know, more than like an average of two runs per game. But what they've done right, what they've done so far is a reminder that they are an excellent baseball team, especially when it comes to their pitching. Oh, by the way, they've played Detroit, Washington, Oakland, and Boston so far this year. That helps. Yeah, I, I mean, I I would say believe in in it. I heard one of their I, their their field reporter on Bally Sports. I heard her talking on um on uh, pregame where she said like nine, ten wins in a row don't happen accidentally. Even if you're playing against these bad teams, um, their pitching is outstanding. They've got legit studs, and they don't even have Tyler Glass now, who's starting the year injured. Um, the offense is the one I'd probably sit there and say like, yeah, maybe it takes a hit and goes back down to earth a little bit, but regardless, their pitching is so strong that I'm buying into it. Tampa absolutely looks like the team that's going to be the toughest to deal with in the American league. Yeah. I would buy into it too, because I, everything they're doing is sustainable. Not, not just because they're beating bad teams, but I mean, offensively, I think that's going to sustain Randy Rosarena is now performing in the early portions of the regular season, rather than just in October and on big stages. Uh, you look at their bullpen, their bullpen's awesome. Oh, and by the way, Wander Franco, healthy again and that's a huge yeah. piece for their offense so I, I look at them I, I think it's sustainable I, I was kind of skeptical of them early in the year just because I didn't know about their pitching behind uh, what's his name McClanahan and and then I also was like yeah, can their bullpen really be that good and offensively what will they look like if Franco doesn't bounce back and they've exceeded all my expectations. I think they're going to finish the best team in the American League with 100-plus wins. Good thing they didn't give that Wander Franco a contract extension. Yeah, great thing. It's overrated. All right, from the 314, guys, did you watch any of the play-in tournament last night in the NBA? And if so, where did the Lakers-Timberwolves rank among the worst offensive performances you've ever seen? Guys, don't ask Tanner and I. We boycott play-in tournaments. I know Tanner does. I'll give my spiel in a second. The, the fourth quarter in overtime was among the worst. <clears throat> offensive stretches of basketball I think I've ever seen. I think the Timberwolves in the final six minutes of regulation and then adding in the five minutes of overtime made two baskets from the field. They had the three points from the terrible Anthony Davis three or the the foul on the three and then in overtime they, they got four points. It, it was horrendous. I really liked the Lakers. I told you guys in my FanDuel read, hey, take the Lakers 10 to 1 to win the West. Why not? It's it's so wide open this year. The odds are there for them. That game did not help my belief that the Lakers have any chance of being able to go on a Hold run. Hold on. So two teams that didn't deserve to be in the playoffs. But the Lakers the, the Lakers did. They, they would have been. So they, they belong in the playoffs because they're the 7-8. Yeah. The games that are tonight, America, do yourself a favor. Don't watch. It's bad The basketball. Lakers would have been in the playoffs even without the, the play-in. It's yeah, seven, eight, nine, seven. ten. The Lakers were. Seven. So you're surprised at how bad those offenses were against each other. Yeah, I mean the fourth quarter was among the worst. Like you could have watched a game between the two worst teams in the NBA this season, and it would have looked better offensively than what we saw last night in the fourth quarter. Like Charlotte, Detroit had better, would have had better moments in the fourth quarter than what we saw in the final six minutes of regulation. It was horrendous. It was absolutely atrocious offensive basketball. Neither team wanted to score. Man, I'm really glad I boycotted the playing the game because that sounds awful. Uh, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line for questions and answers. Final question here. Guys, it seems like everybody is now jumping on board with Bryce Young being the number one overall pick, and there seem to be more headlines by the day that the Texans will not be taking a quarterback at number two. Do you think those two things are related? That the Texans don't select number two? No. So the it sounds like Bryce Young is likely to go number one. And the, the Texans, Texans are, are currently being- picking second. And there are now rumors that they're going to trade the Texans out of it. are no that they're not going to take a quarterback 
at number two. Oh, I think they liked Bryce Young. And I, I think now if Bryce Young goes number one, they're like, oh, bleep. <laughs> we thought he wasn't going to go I, a number one. I still think this is Carolina playing the cards here. Like, I think Carolina's playing this in terms of trying to get a little bit more equity to see how bad Houston really wants Bryce Young. I don't think this is the Panthers wanting Bryce Young. I think this is the Panthers saying, what, what, what could we get out of this if number two really wants this quarterback here? See, I, I think they're taking Bryce Young. I, I think Bryce Young is the best quarterback coming out of this class, and I've said that since day one and when we had everybody declare for the NFL draft. I, I like him better than C.J. Stroud. C.J. Stroud did nothing to really impress me last year except for one game, and it happened to be in the college football playoff. And everybody was like, oh, wow, look at that. Yeah, he's a good quarterback. It's like, no, he hadn't done anything for Ohio State all year long. How Bryce I, Young do in the college football playoffs? Well, he didn't get there. But oh, okay. I, I do think Bryce Young is the best quarterback. I've seen him perform better in against higher competition in the SEC than I've seen C.J. Stroud do most of last year. I would still take Anthony Richardson, number one. <laughs> I'd take Hendon Hooker, number one. I've heard he's the best talent of everybody. Don't get me started. Um, I would take I would take Richardson number one because of the upside there. I I really like Bryce Young. I would really like Bryce Young to not play for my team and somebody else to take him. The reason why is just because like he is such an outlier by every standard. He's short and he's small, and that we we just haven't seen that translate to the NFL. The only guy that has done it, and everybody's going to point to him and say, "Yeah, but blank." Drew Brees. I was just going to say that. Drew, Drew Brees is the one guy that we've seen where it's like, hey, you went on to have a Hall of Fame career at that size. Okay. If you have to point to one player as the outlier for that working in the NFL. It means it can be done. I am going to side with the, hey, this guy's 6'4", 240 pounds, runs a 4'4", and has a cannon of an arm. I've seen that work a lot more often in the league. Now, he's got some stuff that he's got to work on. But as long as he's got the mental capacity to take it on, and it seems like he does, I, w- I would go Anthony Richardson number one, and I think I would take C.J. Stroud number two. I would have Bryce Young third for me. The, the uncomfortable part for me of drafting Richardson is I know when I draft him, I'm drafting him and not going to see the results because I'm going to be fired because it's probably going to take too long for him to develop. Maybe. I actually disagree with that. I think that his, his running ability means that this year he could be for you basically what Justin Fields was last year. And if you see that out of him, that gives you enough of a floor to be able to make it through potentially. Coming up next, is last night's late game defense the way that this team should go about it on a regular basis for the foreseeable future? T-Bone has an interesting pitch on this. We'll, we'll hear what he has to say about it next. You're on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. And he unloads toward left. Donovan on the run. Still going, still going, still going. He leaps up. And he makes a great grab on the running track. Oh, baby, might be a game saver. It's just impressive. You, you tell him he's going to play left field. He goes out there, shags a couple balls, and then comes up with that play. This is a guy that, regardless of what you ask him to do, he just, just goes and does it. Um, but that was a big, big play. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. That audio courtesy of Bally Sports Midwest. Huge, huge catch from Brendan Donovan last night in left field. And T-Bone, we were talking last night during the game. You brought up something that I found to be really interesting. Is there a scenario where this team's best defensive alignment actually includes Donovan playing more in left field? Sounds odd when you first hear it, but explain that to the audience. 
Yeah, so, I mean, we we talked about it in the open. You know, if that's Alec Burleson, who's in left field today because it's a right-handed pitcher on the mound. Yesterday was a lefty, so Burleson's not in the lineup, so you get all your right-handed bats in there. I I don't think Alec Burleson makes that catch in left field last night. And, and that was a big moment in the game, in last night's game. So the way that you can keep Burleson in the lineup along with Gorman and Donovan, who they really like against right-handed pitching, and I think we're seeing all three of them in the lineup again today. Uh, you can put Donovan in left field like he was last night, and instead of having Gorman DH, you have Gorman play second base, and then you have Burleson serve as the everyday DH role against right-handed pitching. And I, I, I think it's the best alignment to go about it because, one, you keep all three bats in the lineup, and we've seen how Burleson's played really well in the early portion of the year, and I honestly think it's a much better defensive alignment. I know a lot of people will say, Nolan Gorman at second base, he's not good defensively. I, I think Gorman's been pretty good defensively. I, I thought he showed increased range in spring training, and I, I think we've seen him, what, once or twice there so far in the regular season, and I don't think he's been noticeably bad. So I, Except I, for that weird... Uh, that the weird play from the other the run, night, the, the rundown. rundown play. That I mean that one that was a mistake, but I, I think that was more of just a second year kid sure. making that mistake. I don't think it ever happens again, or at least it shouldn't happen again. I just think this is your better defensive alignment in terms of keeping those three bats in the lineup. If Burleson goes cold, I think then you switch back to Gorman being the DH, put Donovan at second, and honestly you shift Tyler O'Neill to left and put Carlson in center because that's probably your best all around outfield alignment. But I, I really want to see Donovan get more playing time in left field. He's a Swiss Army knife for a reason, and I, I think he can be out there in the outfield, provide better defense than what Burleson is, and I think Burleson's upside, honestly, is probably always going to be a everyday DH that can probably fill in in the outfield in a pinch and also fill in at first base in a pinch. I, I like it, but what happens when Newpar's healthy? Then are you just going back to what it was before? Yeah. Probably. So you're just... against right. Like If we're talking about this against right-handed pitching specifically, I actually think there's a scenario where Newpar's your center fielder and you still have um, Donovan and left. And you're sitting O'Neal and Carlson? Potentially. Yeah. I, I, I just right-handed pitching. Because this this really comes down to, is O'Neal hitting better than at least one of Donovan, Gorman, Burleson, Newtbar? Because you're, you're, you're not taking Walker out of the lineup. And maybe it's maybe it's not the first time it's happened. At least it's the first time that I've noticed it. We didn't even talk about it today. They did bump O'Neal down a spot against a right-handed pitcher. Gorman is hitting... Six today rather than Tyler O'Neill. And in the previous outings against righties, O'Neill had been hitting six and Gorman was seven. So there is kind of a slight, um, I would call it kind of the tipping of the hand from the Cardinals of, hey, we don't think Tyler O'Neill's been that impressive against right at pitching. We're bumping up Nolan Gorman. I, I Like I said, I love, I've enjoyed Brendan Donovan in left field because as, as well as Alec Burleson has hit, him in left field is a little infuriating because you're talking about some of those fly balls, those situations where it looks like it's a little bit of a labor. I just don't see the scenario where you're sitting both O'Neill and Carlson, even if they're struggling against righties and you want those bats in there, because it does seem like they have all of the hope in the world with those two guys that they're going to get right, that they're going to, they're going to keep one of those in the outfield moving forward. I mean, against lefties, this is a very different conversation because all of these guys suddenly become like, either bench bats or complementary pieces at the bottom of your order against lefties. But it's really against the right-handed pitching. Like, they've already shown a hesitance to put Dylan Carlson out there against righties. He's had, I think it's three starts so far this year against right-handed pitching on the season. Tyler O'Neill is really the question of, like, Tyler... It it becomes a, do you start Tyler O'Neill? Do you want to start Tyler O'Neill in center field? If the answer to that is yes, okay, well, then you're talking about O'Neal versus Newt Bar in center. 
And if you want to start both of those guys, now you're bumping out one of Donovan Burleson or Gorman against a right-handed pitching in favor uh, pitcher in favor of O'Neill. There's just no case to be made that that's the smart decision right now against right-handed pitching. You need all three of those left-handed bats in your lineup. They're better options for you. Statistically speaking, underlying numbers, everything you want to throw out there. They're better options for you right now against a right-handed pitcher, Van Tyler O'Neill. Now, if you want to put Nupar on the bench because you don't think that he's going to give you a better at-bat than Tyler O'Neill, well, then everything that we heard in the offseason was fake. So I, I, I just don't believe that to be true either. I think it makes a lot of sense. And it, it really is just reassigning where these guys are going to be playing. Now, the place where I think it might fall flat is the same place that it fell flat a year ago with Nolan Gorman, where they said, we don't want this guy being a DH for us every day in his first year up in the big leagues because it's a really hard job to get a handle on because you're sitting so much throughout the course of the game and you're just taking those at-bats with you up to the plate the next time you go up. So if you had a bad first at-bat, does it bleed into the second one? And then it bleeds into the third, and then you're not able to contribute in any other way. Do they feel the same way that they did last year about Gorman being a DH this year about Alec Burleson? That, I think, would be the biggest question for them. I don't think that you should have that concern because at some point, I think that's probably Burleson's best role is like DH most of the time, an occasional outfielder, occasional first baseman for you. That's probably the way that he's going to fit long term. But I think for right now, that really is the question. And then this all brings up the question of what does it mean for Juan Yepes? Guys, I, I don't know what Juan Yepes's role is for this team. Today, he's not in the lineup in favor of Taylor Motter. He, so far this year, he's had three starts for the Cardinals. He's been a DH in all three of those opportunities. He's hit eighth, ninth, and eighth in the lineup in those three games. What do you guys think is his role in the immediacy and in the long term for the Cardinals, where does he fit? <sighs> uh, um, emergency player for the Cardinals? Like when an injury pops up, but we'll bring Juan Yepes up, and then when we need somebody to fill a role for us because we're out of options, then there's Juan Yepes. Or maybe bench bat late into games where we feel like he can come through. I mean, I've I've, I've said before, like there's some of it that reminds me of Matt Adams, although Alec Burleson does the exact same with that. But I don't see an everyday role for Juan Yepes right now with this team. There's just too many options until they blatantly say, like, yeah, we're going to have to move on from this option. I don't know who that would be. Juan Yepes might be the the uh, the, the fall guy in terms of, yeah, you're just going to be in the minors until we have an injury pops up, which screams trade, which also screams <laughs> uh, big liability for the Cardinals moving on from Is somebody. Is he the guy they trade for a big-time reliever? Like, is that what's where this is headed? Most likely I, is like they, they use him the way that they did. Uh, what's his face? First baseman now for oh, Milwaukee Voight, where Voight was traded to the Yankees to get them Giovanni Gallegos. I, I feel like that. It feels like we're headed down that path, barring some kind of unforeseen injury. Maybe I could see that because I, I, I think somebody would like to take a flyer on Juan Yepes just to put him in the lineup somewhere. I mean, the guy can clearly hit. I mean, he's got four or three or four hits and his three games so far this season, and and he's hit for some power. He had the home run last night, should have had a double last night as well. I, I thought before we saw the lineup today that they were going to be put in a position where they might even keep Juan Yepes up here if he continued to hit Agreed. and not carry a bench player that was an infielder in terms of you keep uh, Yepes up here, you do, you send down Taylor Motter, you don't bring up uh, 
Paul DeYoung, and then you're sitting at the backup shortstop or backup utility infielder being Gorman or Donovan, and then Yepes, as we talked about in the office, can play third in a pinch, or you can put uh, him at first base. I, I don't see a role for Juan Yepes. I, I, I just don't. I, I think what it would be would be that right-handed power bat kind of off the bench, but I, the I, I don't know. I, I don't think they view him that way. For whatever reason, they keep really sending him down to the minor leagues. It's almost as if they want him to work on defense. When I don't think he's ever going to be a guy that's going to be even average at defense. They just need to maximize his bat, and they haven't really been utilizing it at all. So I, I think he is probably trade bait when we get closer to the deadline. Three one four three nine 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 six four six is the air comfort service text line from the six three six guys. I didn't see the lineup just hearing you guys right now. But why is Motter in this game over Dylan Carlson? If you missed it yesterday, uh, Carlson said in the game on what would have been Monday night during that sliding catch that he had, which was a great catch by him in center field, uh, he had some kind of a tweak in his neck. He's got like it's basically a pointer in his neck. He doesn't think that it's serious. He got a little treatment for it yesterday. It was unavailable because of that. And then it's my guess is today they're just giving him an extra day off since it's a day game coming off of a night game. I don't think it's anything too big of a deal to be concerned about, but something to monitor. That's why he's not in the lineup today. Plus, you're going up against a right-handed pitcher, so this would typically be a spot where he gets the day off. I don't think it was Motter versus Carlson for what it's worth. I think it's more of a Motter versus Juan Yepes at third base type of a conversation. Coming up next, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service tax line for more likely to happen. You give us two scenarios, we'll tell you which one's more likely here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. What's more likely to happen? They'll figure it out. BK and Ferrario's most likely to happen. Three nine 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 six four six is the Air Comfort Service X line in 10 minutes. We're going to be joined by Jim Leland, three-time manager of the year and a World Series champion. I always love catching up with Jim Leland. He was a manager for both the Rockies and the Pirates, the Cardinals' current and next opponent. So we'll talk to Jim Leland about a number of things coming up here in about 10 minutes or so. Right now, though, let's get into more likely to happen. Let's start with this. Guys, is it more likely to happen that the Cardinals trade for an ace at the deadline or... They trade for a significant bullpen piece that factors in to either the eighth or ninth inning mix. I'll say it's more likely that they trade for an ace because that seems to be the biggest area of need for this team. And especially if the pitching continues to go this route and with the uncertainty that you have next year in your rotation with so many guys being free agents, uh, I'll say that they make a significant move to acquire an ace. And it's still Bieber or Nola for me. Those are the two guys. I, I, I'm going to go more likely it's a bullpen arm. I, I don't think they're getting the ace till the offseason, and I think that's what makes this season that's probably going to ultimately end up be disappointing in a lot of Cardinals fans' eyes. I just don't see an ace market developing. I mean, everybody that we're talking about, I mean, you just mentioned Nola and Bieber. Well, if I'm the Gardens, I'm not trading you Nola, we, or excuse me, uh, Bieber, because we're going to be a playoff team, and we think with Bieber and uh, what's his name, McKenzie, we can go on a run in the playoffs because we got two aces. If I'm the Phillies and, and you're, I think they're going to get back into this race. I know they're four and seven. I'm not trading away Aaron Nola when he could be a guy that could help get us to the World Series like he did last year. So I, I have trouble seeing an ace market really developing because a lot of these teams that are going to be sellers don't really have arms. The only guy I could see maybe having that conversation is Logan Webb, but I think he's got years of control in San Francisco. Sounds like they want to bring him back. 
So I think it's an off-season issue. The Cardinals are going to have to get that ace, and that's where Noel, for me, comes in the conversation. And that's why I think you have to build a modern bullpen and get basically seven guys with swing and miss stuff. I'm not saying the bullpen's been bad, but you just add more repertoire to it. Yeah, I, I think it's more likely that they add the bullpen piece because there's more guys that are available that are eighth or ninth inning players at the trade deadline. I mean, if we're just looking around at the likely names to be available at the trade deadline, guys, who, who's the starter that immediately comes to mind for you that you say, hey, he's a number one and he might be available at the deadline? Is there anybody? I, I believe Nola because if the Phillies are just in this middling spot and they know that they're not going to be able to re-sign him, I could see him moving Nola to get some type of assets. There, there's nobody for me because I, I don't think they would move Nola because that's not a Dombrowski move. Um, so I can't think of anybody that would hit the market and all the teams that are going to be out of it don't have an ace. So, so ESPN put out their ace rankings, quote unquote, yesterday. They're their top 10 players that they believe to be the best aces in Major League Baseball. We'll go through these really quickly. You guys tell me if you guys think that they are likely to be available at the trade deadline. Yes or no? Sandy Alcantara. No. Jacob DeGrom. No. Garrett Cole. No. Corbin Burns. No. Shohei well, Otani. Yes, but you can't get him. Yeah. No. Uh, Dylan Cease. Uh, he so might be Sox? available, but I'd, I'd be surprised because of his uh, control. His control. Aaron Nola. Maybe. Maybe. Zach Wheeler. No. Uh, Shane McClanahan. Definitely not. Max Scherzer. No. no. That's it. The, the only name on there that even seems possible, and it's a remote possibility, is Aaron Nola. Other guys on this list, Carlos Rodon, nope. Justin Verlander, nope. Uh, Julio Arias, no. Brandon Woodruff, maybe, but they ain't trading him to you. Max Fried, no. Strider, no. Manoa, no. Like, it's just, it's really hard to get these guys. Maybe Shane Bieber, but the Guardians aren't expected to be terrible this year. Maybe Logan Webb, but he has a bunch of control remaining on his contract. Um, I... I just don't know where you're getting this guy. Maybe Zach Gallen becomes available, but why are the Diamondbacks doing that? If so, they're just in this perennial rebuild. It's hard to find the name that is obvious for the Cardinals to be able to acquire. So I would always say that it is more likely to be a bullpen arm. 314-399-9646 is the error comfort service text line for more likely to happen. Guys, more likely to happen. The Texans take a non-quarterback at number two overall or the Texans trade out of the number two overall pick. I'll say it's more likely that they take a non-quarterback because then they'll look at it as take somebody who's impactful on the defensive side at number two and maybe somebody's still floating around there at 13. They have the 13th one, right? Uh, 12th. 12th. So Anthony Richardson, Will Levis, if he's still available, or maybe it is Hendon Hooker if they have faith there. So I'll say it's more likely they take somebody else at two. So I I think it is more likely they take somebody else at two because I could see where they try to make the argument of, oh, hey, we're going to get one of these, Hmm. a great pass rusher, a great defensive player. And when we're bad, we can hopefully get the number one pick and draft Caleb Williams next year. I I don't think they're going to take a quarterback, though. That's the one part I do disagree with. If you're not going to take somebody at two, I don't think you're reaching for somebody at 13 if they're there. So I I do think it's more likely that they're going to draft somebody else. And it just feels like a Texans move. I just don't understand why you would not take a quarterback. Like if you're I, I think it's more likely they trade out of the pick. Because if you're at two overall and you've got an opportunity to take one of these guys, you got to do it, man. You just got to do it. I, I, I think it would be a horrendous decision to go either of these directions. Take the guy. And if they fail, then guess what? You're going to be terrible again this year because the rest of your roster isn't particularly good. And next year, you take another one. And you keep swinging. You keep swinging until you get the guy. You do what the, te- what the Cardinals did. When they took Josh Rosen, it failed. They were horrendous. And then they ended up taking Kyler Murray. Now... 
they locked themselves into Kyler Murray, and there's real questions about that, but they at least made the right decision in moving on from Josh Rosen and getting a guy that is significantly better regardless of our thoughts on him and Kyler Murray. So I, I think they'd be making a mistake in either of these directions, but I think it's better to, to trade out and get more assets than to take one of these non-quarterbacks at that spot. Coming up in 15 minutes, we're diving into the junk drawer. But next, Jim Leland is a World Series champion. He's a three-time manager of the year. Want to ask him what it's like to manage a team with this kind of talent on it. He's had some good ones over the years. How do you find a way to make sure that everybody's getting the at-bats necessary? And what are Jim Leland's thoughts on having a young guy be that DH? We'll talk to him about that coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Our pleasure to be joined by the World Series champion, three-time manager of the year, Jim Leland, joins us now via the 101 ESPN hotline. Jim, we appreciate the time as always, my friend. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How about you guys? Uh, doing very well. Jim, it's not gone as we all expected here in St. Louis to start out the season. They were 3-7 and seven in their first 10 games of the year. I, I wanted to go back to your 2011 experience uh, with the Detroit Tigers. You guys also started 3-7 and seven that season and then eventually ended up going to the ALCS. When you're going through that tough start to the season as a manager, how do you keep things on the track? How do you make sure that everything gets back on track and eventually, like you did, you're able to have successful uh, a successful season? Well, I think, you know, you, you, you got to come into the clubhouse the same way every day. You can't show any signs of panic to your players. Uh, obviously, you're not very happy with the way things are going, but uh, I think you have to come in and keep the same even keel attitude as a manager and don't show any signs of panic. I think, I think one thing that's important is, uh, and I, I really concentrated on this as a manager. I think, uh, and I think that sometimes, and I'm not saying this is the case with the Cardinals, so please don't say that, uh, that I am, but I will say this in spring training, you got to be careful. And I know they had the W, uh, or the BCS or the World Baseball Classic, uh, WBC. And, and so I know that Arenado and, and Goldsmith got some good at-bats and everything. But I think sometimes, and I'm not talking about those two guys, I'm talking about any team with veteran players, you got to be careful because you can l- l- be lulled into a false sense of security if you give veteran players too much slack in spring training. And what I mean by that is a lot of times veteran players will tell you that Hey, don't worry, Skip. I know what it takes to get ready. You know, I've played quite a while. I know what it takes. I know about, well, I always tried to make sure that, that, you know, I had them play. So I made sure they were ready. I, because if you fall for that, sometimes, uh, players get off to bad starts and you got to be very, very careful with that. I think it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a really big point that you don't, uh, slack off in spring training. You know, you come in a, a nice winter and after a big season, and all of a sudden you uh, relax the way you run your spring training, uh, that's very dangerous. So I always uh, I always had my players play in spring training because I think that was my number one goal in spring training, have the guys that I know are going to be playing for me, I want them ready to play on opening day. Jimmy, you mentioned the 
panic if you know it doesn't start out the way that you want it to. If you sense that panic in players in the clubhouse early in the season, is there anything a manager can do to ease that? Well, I I don't know that the players really panic as much as people think they do. I mean, the players that have been good and have good track records, they know at the end of the day uh, if their numbers and everything is going to be there, the wins are going to come. In the Cardinals' case, they have a very, very good team. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't worry about that uh, too much at this point. I think think the players probably are not going to panic. You might see some young players that panic a little bit that are getting their first opportunity or something, but generally uh, veteran players won't panic. Jim, you mentioned your experience at the WBC back in 2017. You had Goldie, you had Arenado. What was your experience like with those two guys? What, what, whether it just be off the field or your experience watching them on it, what stood out about those two players when you when you were able to be with them? Well, they were they were great players and they were true professionals. I think Goldie was actually a little upset that he didn't play quite as much maybe as he wanted to. Although I I did the best I could. I also had Eric Hosmer at the time who was. <laughs> who was, uh, you know, very good, swinging the bat, had been a world champion, I think, in 2015, whenever it was, Kansas City won. So, uh, you know, I, I tried to do the best I could. Arenado, I, I pretty much played every game. Uh, they're two professionals, and they're both great, great players. They're superstars. There's no question about it. Great great guys, really good guys, and very professional uh, on and off the field. I love both of them. And I, like I said, I felt kind of bad because I think Goldie was a little upset that maybe he didn't get as many at-bats as he wanted to. But in those situations, uh, you know, when you're managing a situation like that, you just do the best you can. There was a couple other players that didn't get as many at-bats as they wanted to, but those two guys were a couple of younger players. So you do the best you can. You can't please everybody. And the the best thing about that was we won the whole thing. (laughs) And a follow-up on that, you guys had a lot of success, of course, as you mentioned there. Uh, how difficult is that to be a manager in the WBC where you've got the backdrop of all these clubs want their players to get the playing time because they're preparing for their regular seasons, and it's really a question for them of, okay, if you're going to the WBC, that's great, but you got to get the at-bats. you got to get the innings that you would in the, in the spring training and is that going to be there? That became a real question this year, Jim, for a lot of teams with the way that the pitching was going over in the WBC. How tough is that when you're managing that team during spring training to make sure, especially with the arms, that they're getting the innings that are necessary while also trying to win the games, as you guys did in 2017, to win the WBC? Well, well I, I, you'd be surprised. I, I've always said it was the best, worst job I've ever had. It was the best job because we won everything, and it was the first time the United States won. It was the worst job because you're scared to death that the players are amping it up a little bit earlier than they normally would, and you're dealing with other teams' players. They're not your players. So you're you're scared to death that somebody's going to get hurt, and you don't want that on your plate if you can help it. Uh, The Altuve situation was unfortunate. They couldn't help it. The Diaz situation, unfortunate. They couldn't help it. But – it's very difficult, and if I told you some of the things I went through, you wouldn't believe it. I mean, I've actually, I actually had pitching coaches call me and tell me, "Hey, my pitcher can throw 13 pitches tonight. That's it." Really? And, <laughs> yeah, and I said, "Well, don't worry, I won't pitch him at all tonight." You know, <laughs> but we were fortunate. We did a good job with our pitching. I felt like we did a very good job. Jeff Jones, my pitching coach, and um, you know, everybody pitched and everybody got their innings, and we never went over their pitch limit or anything like that. So. We were really proud of that, and uh, but I, it's funny you ask that because I talked to Mark DeRosa 
he called me uh, early on when he got the job, and I said, the toughest thing you're going to have to deal with, you really have to stay on top of it, your pitching, because it happens fast, and they can only throw so many pitches, and, you know, you got to have somebody ready almost at all times. And so that's the difficult part of, of managing that team. The position players, it's not so bad because most of the guys got at bats, and even the youngest guys got some at bats in the earlier stages of that tournament. But uh, it's it's not an easy job like everybody thinks. Jim, one final question on, on the WBC that I wanted to ask you about. That, that final at-bat that we saw between Otani and Mike Trout, you've been around this game your entire life, Jim. You've been able to watch a lot of baseball can you put in perspective what that was like for you to watch with what we all know about Shohei and what kind of a player and pitcher he is and then going up against Mike Trout in that moment with, I mean, the title on the line there. What was that like for you to be able to take in? Well, I, I obviously enjoyed it very much. I mean, you could have, I've never believed in scripted games, but if you could ever script one, that was absolutely perfect. And I'm sure it was great for TV. It was great for the baseball fans all over the world to see that, uh, you know, come about. So I was like everybody else on the edge of my seat. And, uh, you know, two of the greatest players in the game, obviously, and teammates. Uh, what a unique situation, really, that, that, that came up. And, uh, you know, it was great. It was great for both those guys, and it was great for baseball. Jim, I want to go back to something you said a little bit ago about talk, or managing younger players. And one player right now that's in the spotlight at Major League Baseball is the Cardinals' young outfielder, Jordan Walker, and a successful start to the early portion of his career. Uh, and one player that I've heard him comped to a lot was Derek Lee, just the way how big he is, how he approaches the at-bats. You had Derek Lee when he was a younger player. What was it that stuck out to you about Derek Lee? And if you've caught any of Jordan Walker, do you see some similarities? Well, Derek Lee was a very calm player. Uh, he had a really good demeanor about him, and he, he never really got too excited, and I think it really helped him. Uh, we broke him in. In fact, I think he hit 17 home runs that year for us, and uh, he was a young player. Of course, that was a team that we lost so many games after losing everybody's no World Series, but he was really a uh, I, I'm sure this Walker, I've heard so much about him, I think. With young players, when you're trying to break young players in, you really have to stay on top of that as well. You kind of you get them out there as much as you can. And in his case, he's doing so well; he's going to be in there all the time. But and when they struggle a little bit, you kind of get them out of there once in a while to give them a little breather. Then you put them back in there. You want young players to play, and you can never give up on them too soon. So uh, this kid looks like stardom to me. But you know, it's early, and he's going to end up having to make an adjustment as the league makes adjustments to him. And I'm sure he'll do that. But breaking in young players is really a fun thing. But it is a job. You have to watch and say, you know, here's a real nasty right-handed pitcher. If you got a right-hand hitter that, you know, he's struggling a little bit. I'm going to get him out of there against this guy. We've got a couple lefties coming up in the next series. I'll get him back in there. You know, you want to keep that confidence going as much as you can. So it's, it's just another thing that a manager has to do. And you're, you're always working as a manager to, to you know, to look ahead to, uh, in case those kind of things unfold. You're always looking as a manager to, you know, make sure you're doing the right thing and make sure you're helping the player get adjusted to major league competition as well as possible. Jim Leland is a World Series champion and a three-time manager of the year in Major League Baseball. He's joining us here on 101 ESPN for just another couple of minutes. Jim, I wanted to stick with that theme of uh, managing young players. The Cardinals have a lot of them on this team, and there are a couple of guys that probably in a best-case scenario are, are DHs on a normal team. 
but they also play the field, of course, and one of them has been playing in left field quite a lot. And last year, the Cardinals said, hey, we don't want Nolan Gorman getting everyday opportunities at DH. We don't want that the at-bat carrying over for him. We, we want him playing the field regularly. And this year, he's been more at DH because he's got that year of experience at the big league level. He's better at the plate. He's more comfortable with everything that's going on. When you were a manager, how did you handle that with the DH spot? Did you feel comfortable putting young players in that in that role? Well, I did, but it's the most of the team, if you have a little more of a veteran team, uh, like I did most of the time, uh, you know, you, you had a veteran that really kind of took that role, like Miguel Cabrera kind of does this year for the Tigers, although he's not playing as much because, you know, of his injuries and stuff like that. But, um, no, I, I think it's a good thing to uh, play him in the field. You want as many two-way players as you can get, that's for sure. But I think you can also get them off their feet once in a while by letting them DH. And I think it kind of gives them a little reprieve where they're not worried about both sides of the ball. They're just worried about their offense tonight because they're hitting, and that's all they're going to do. And then put the, put a little more pressure on them by getting them out there so they can hopefully become a better two-way player uh, throughout their career because the more two-way players you have, obviously, the better your team's going to be. Jim, final one from me, and of course we started off talking about you know the concern from Cardinals fans of the early start to this season. From a manager's perspective, when you're evaluating your ball club, and we always hear the cliche of Tony LaRusso's statement of it's the first week of the season, how deep into a season, Jim, do you start to look at a team and say, okay, I think I have a good idea of what we are? No, I don't know. I, I think maybe it's the first 40 games, I think you, you kind of get an idea of what's going on. Uh, but I think you have a pretty good idea before. The Cardinals are going to be fine. The one thing that I respect about the St. Louis Cardinals is they bring a lot of young players uh, from their system over their history, particularly recently. They bring young players to the big leagues, and they let them play. they they got a good farm system that develops their players. They do something right, that's for sure. And the one thing that I admire about the Cardinals is they're not afraid to let their young players play, the guys that come up from the minor leagues. And that's And I think that's really paid big dividends now. You know, that's a little easier to say when you got a team like the Cardinals because they had Goldsmith, Arenado, and Yadi Molina. Well, when you got three veterans like that, it makes it a whole lot easier to break people in. Jim, final question. We'll get you out of here on this. The Cardinals are playing in Colorado right now. They've got the final game of this series coming up in about an hour or so. How difficult is it to evaluate pitching performances when you're out at that field? Well, I, I only lasted one year there because I was a, pitch, I, I was a pitcher's manager. And, uh, you know, they treated me unbelievably great. I was just a pitcher's manager, and I just couldn't really manage in that ballpark. I think it's a little bit different now than when I was there, but I never really evaluated pitchers. I mean, when I was there, a pitcher, a starting pitcher could pitch a good game. He could give up seven runs, and he really pitched <laughs> pretty good. It, it's unbelievable. Yesterday we saw Miles Michaelis go out there, and for the first four innings it, it looked pretty good, and then the fifth inning it all blew up on him. He gave up a couple of homers. It it fell apart quickly. Hey, Jim, it, it's great to be able to catch up with you. Thanks so much for hopping on with us today. We sincerely appreciate the time. We wish you all the best, and hopefully we'll catch up again soon. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Absolutely. That's Jim Leland, 1997 World Series champion, a three-time manager of the year. He managed the Pirates, the Marlins, the Rockies, and the Tigers over a 22-year span. Always appreciate him giving us a little bit of time, sharing his expertise on the sport here on 101 ESPN. 
Alex, when when I think about what he had to say there specifically about the Cardinals, and then he was talking about what happened in 2011 when his team started the season the exact same way that this Cardinals team did, and then eventually made it to the ALCS. Now fell short, but made it to the ALCS. It's all about not panicking. And I think that's what you saw last night from the Cardinals. That was a game where in that seven-game stretch where they looked awful, they panic. They blink in a moment, and Arenado doesn't hit that double. Maybe Donovan doesn't make that catch. Gorman doesn't hit that homer. And it starts looking a little different for you. And you end up maybe losing the game like seven to four instead of winning it nine to six. Instead, they're able to come up with those plays. And last night it felt to me like a week's worth of pressure finally was able to be shed for them. Yeah, well, and the people that you look at to find out if the panic's there are the guys that are going to be leading. And Nolan Arenado, who uh, didn't have the best stretch when the team was struggling there, striking out in a couple of runners in scoring position. I know he told Jim Hayes that on the postgame show last night that he was the one that felt like he was struggling in those spots. Those are the guys that came through for you in those games. So then when you look at the younger players, the Nolan Gormans, the Jordan Walkers, I mean, Jordan Walker has been consistent. Nolan Gorman's been consistent, but it's those big time moments that when they're breaking through for it, you feel like, okay, there was no panic with this team. It was just a matter of getting that breakthrough. And frankly, that's what this team's made of. You've got the veterans like Arnado and, and Goldschmidt and even Contreras, I consider a veteran right now, but this team is made up of a lot of younger players. So those guys not panicking is going to be the reason this team stays successful. Did you hear what he said about, by the way, first of all, when you asked him, and I thought it was a great question by you, Alex. We asked him about Derek Lee, and he said, oh, I think he hit 17 home runs that season. That's ridiculous recall. Like, absolutely absurd recall for him. The guy's been managing in Major League Baseball for more than 20 years. He's been out of the game at this point for a decade, and he remembered in 1998 the exact number of home runs that Derek Lee hit in his true rookie season. That's absurd. Like Baseball people are just a little different. Um, but that being said... When he was talking about Derek Lee, he said he's just calm. Nothing really bothered him. He went up to the plate. He had an exact approach. He knew what he was trying to accomplish while he was up there. That sound familiar to you guys? Mm-hmm. So- sound like somebody that we're watching right now who has now tied the record, or he's right there with Eddie Murphy of the, the longest hitting streak to start a career at 20 years old or younger in the history of the sport. It's just just ridiculous what we're watching right now with with Jordan Walker. Uh, hey, if you could be Derek Lee, that's a awesome player to have on your roster. I I laughed at the notion in the offseason of like people who said, "Hey, I wouldn't sign up for that because I expect Jordan Walker to be better." Jordan Walker might be better. <laughs> it's insane to say, but there's a real chance that Jordan Walker ends up having a better major league career than Derek Lee. Based on what we've seen so far, it's early, but man, has he been impressive. Coming up next, we'll dive into the junk drawer here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The junk drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Fenton Bar and Grill. Best trashed wings in Missouri. Dine in, carry out, seven days a week. And Taylor Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. Let's dive into the junk drawer. Alex, what do you got for us today? Right, I got another list for you, boys. Oh, oh, love list. Another movie list that T-Bone probably has not seen half of these or maybe all of these. So it's the most, the top 12. It's a list of 12 unkillable action heroes in movie history. 
So not horror films, not superheroes. I don't bring up Superman because it's stupid. Unkillable action heroes in movie history. And it's a top right, 12 see, list. I would think James Bond I feel Bond like there's on one here, that's obvious, yeah. But spoiler alert, he died in the last movie, so what I don't the, know. dude? Jeez, I haven't seen man. it yet. Man, if I'm you assuming James Bond is yet, on this list, Yeah, though. James Bond is number eight oh, on so this, this list. Probably he's already because, been killed. Probably because he died in that one. <laughs> but think of how long James Bond um, lasted. He lasted through like five different actors. Can I guess one real quick? Please. There are a few on here that I don't think you guys will get. Terminator? Uh, Terminator, yes. T-800. Oh, wow. Uh, that is number 11 on this list. That is way too low. And there's some yeah, of these that, that guy, like, the rankings, once you hear the rankings, it's like, okay, you didn't uh, rank these correctly. John Wick, I'm assuming, would be and up that there. That was my next John one. John Wick is number with. two on this list. He should have been number one. John Wick, John uh, Wick is. Wait till you hear what number one is. Uh, okay. What's his name from? I can't remember what his name is in the movies, but Mission Impossible, Tom Cruise. He's number one. Okay. <laughs> and understandably so. You the the man yeah. is like climbing on buildings with gloves that stick to the What's mirror. What's his name in the movies? Uh, Ethan Hunt. That's right. Ethan yeah. Hunt. And there's been like 15 of them. So yeah. He's okay, still so making one money off of those, man. I don't, He's right? making another one. Uh, one, two, oh. eight, and eleven. You Jason have so Bourne. far. Oh, that's a good Jason one. Jason Bourne is not on this list, really? which I I'm was surprised very surprised by. by. Yep. Indiana, Indiana Jones. Jones. Yep. Boom. Nope. Indiana Jones what? not on this list either. This list really sucks. What? One yeah, James Bond is dead, and two those guys aren't on it. Well, technically, Die Indiana Jones is going to die John, in this John, one too. John McClane is that his? John McClane is on this list. Die Hard. Uh, he Christmas is movie. number ten. Um, so we've got one, two, three, four, five of the top eleven. Mm-hmm. Now I'm I'm leaking confidence. Yeah. I, uh, would a GI Joe be on there? I don't no. think there's been GI Joe movies. Though. Yeah, there's been two of them. Uh, yeah. Kill Bill. Kill Bill. Yeah. Uh, Beatrix Kiddo. I have never seen Kill Bill, so I don't know much I about it. I saw Kill Bill two yeah, when I was like twelve, it. and I'm pretty sure I shouldn't have been watching that movie. That makes sense. Uh, number seven is Kill Bill. Rambo. Rambo is number three. Yeah, Absolutely. What's Rambo in? He's in Rambo. Are you yeah, I don't know You've never I've seen, seen any of the Rambo films with no. Sly How Stone? many Arnold Schwarzenegger movies have you seen? I've actually? seen most of the Terminators. Okay. You know Wait, Rambo's is he in Sylvester Rambo? Stallone. Right? Oh, jeez. No. Yeah. yeah Schwarzenegger's point. Terminator. But it's that s- same era. Say. I'm going to try to make this sound better than what just happened there because yeah, I had a brain. If you could have gone with Predator, we would have combined the have two. Have you seen Rocky? I've seen Rock. Uh, I've seen some of them. I don't think I've seen them all. That's fair. I, I mean, it's well before your time. I think I've seen one in So you're missing. There's got to be something with Denzel. Five of them. No, no I Denzel see, I don't think on he's here. Had a, like, you were thinking of like the Equalizer. Yeah, equalizer like that. is that. For equalizer, yeah. yeah. Do you want me to give you the the other yeah, five? Is Star Wars? Is, someone mentioned Han Solo. Is there a Star Wars character on no, here? There's no Solo Star Wars character. Too. On here. So I guess he would fit the plot. Dude, spoiler alert! If you haven't seen me. either of these movies yet, then right. just uh. so number twelve on this list, Mike Banning. You've seen the uh, the Fallen series, Olympus has fallen. Actually. They're phenomenal, and it's absolutely correct because the man has gone through the gauntlet and still found a way to survive. How so, many of those are there? Two? Uh, there's three, three, and I think they're about to make the fourth one. There's Olympus has fallen, London has fallen, and Angel has fallen, and then there's another one coming out. Uh, number 11, you guys guessed it, was T-800 from the Terminator films. Number 10, John McClane in the Die Hard films. This is the one I didn't think you guys would get. Alice from the Resident Evil films. Oh, okay. Uh, Figure you wouldn't get that one. Uh, eight was Bond. Seven was Kill Bill. Six, Axel Foley from the Beverly Hills Cops films. Haven't seen those. Haven't seen those? No. Those are phenomenal. Eddie Murphy's great in those. Five, this was the one that it's like, really? Because there were a couple of others that we mentioned that should have been on this. John Mason from The Rock. Okay. Nicholas that, Cage's character. By the way, one all-time great bad movie. Oh, bad movie? I thought that was an awesome movie. I mean, it's a, it's a bad movie. 
but it is a great film. But how do you that make put, sense? How no. do you put unkillable action hero when it's there's super, been... It's like The Replacements. Have you ever seen The Replacements? Oh, I love no. The Replacements. That's a bad movie. It's Keanu what? Reeves. You should see that. Uh, it's a it's a Keanu it's a Reeves bad fan. movie. But I incredible. enjoy the hell out of that movie. I will watch it any time that it is on. This Independence is Day. Independence Not a great Day. movie. I enjoy the hell out of the movie. Though. You know, I gotta watch it every Fourth of July. I boycotted seeing the remake of that film or the sequel to that film because Will Smith wasn't in it. Can't Sorry. do that film without Will Smith. Uh, but this is trash to me because there's been one film. How was somebody yeah. unkillable when it's one film? Anyway, four. This is the one I was surprised you guys didn't guess. Dom Toretto from the Fast and the Furious films. I was wondering if there was uh, gonna be something going to outer space in his car and he's not That's, dying. That was, by the way, when I said I'm good. I'm good with the Fast and the Furious once I went to space. I liked them all the way up until the space one. Then it's like, yeah, a little too much I here. I think anytime you got a franchise going 10 movies in, I think it's about time. They're, they're what, 12 in now? Oh, yeah. yeah they're, they got they're coming out with another out. one coming out, too. And they're still making hundreds of millions And they've made spin, spin-offs of it, too. So, but, yeah, it's the list. What was 321 again? 321, you guys got that. It was Rambo, it was John Wick, and then number one That's was... Right. Um, why am I forgetting? And I just clicked out of the list as well. Yeah, we, we'll just say we got it right. We got it right, though. I can't remember who it was. Die Hard? No, that no, was 10. He was 9 or something like that. Yeah. I can't remember. We did I, I, I promise we had it. I just... John, we Mission, said Impossible. John, we, Mission Impossible. Oh, Ethan yeah, Hunt. Yeah. Ethan Hunt. All right. Well, I was good you at that You need to list. go watch some Rambos, though. I've never even heard of Rambo. Dude, Rambo was so good. Love Sly Stone. Somebody on the text line said Replacement, Replacements is a classic documentary about one man finding his place in life. It's amazing. It's true. With an incredible play. motivator is as really their a head coach. Probably on PBS if you watch. Oh, I do need to watch part two. And then they do the electric that. slide in the end zone. Yeah, I do need to watch part two of my documentary on PBS. I, that, has, that is such a good movie in terms of quotes. I love it when a fat man scores. Fat man scores, fat man dance. The Replacements is one of my favorite sports movies. Yeah. Yeah, it's up there. It, that, Miracle, um, and Rocky. Those would probably Major be like three. Major League again because of the quote worthiness. Yeah. Yeah, but, and then I think I would probably have to throw in basketball film, which would probably be Coach Carter for me. Oh, that's a good one. Those are like my top five. It's a deep cut. I love Coach Carter. I love Samuel L. Jackson, though. So. You know what? I don't, I don't like Hoosiers. Heard of Coach Carter. Yeah, I've never I liked I haven't talked about it all year on the broadcast last year. I think Hoosiers is overrated. I, I don't find it to be an enjoyable watch. I think that's overrated. I like Glory Road more than I like Hoosiers. Glory Road would have been my second basketball film. And then third would be Space Jam. Well, I'd rather watch Jump Space Jam. That's a good one, too. I'd rather watch Space Jam over Hoosiers. The first one, not the second one. That's trash. Nobody likes LeBron. Somebody mentioned The Sandlot. That's my wife's favorite sports movie. I like The Sandlot. I don't even know if I... I mean, it is a sports movie, but like... I don't know. It doesn't feel like a sports movie. It's a coming-of-age movie. Yeah. Yeah. Almost. That's more better. of like a sports You film. only see the major leagues, what, like the final five minutes? Or is that even in the first one? I think it is. Or one of them makes it to the pros and one's, I think, a broadcaster. Somebody said you don't like yeah. kicking and screaming with Will Ferrell. Now, that is definitely not a sports movie. No. That's a terrible film. It's a comedy that happens to include soccer. There's only one quote from that, and it's break somebody's clavicle. And I say it every time we play softball. Also, semi-pro. Not a good movie. No, that's a, that was a bad movie. Somebody said Moneyball. I like Moneyball a lot. Will Ferrell's sports good. movies were not good. Uh, Blaze Glory was great. Would you consider that a sports movie? I, mean, <laughs> I don't even know that movie. I'm not going to get into that territory. I'm not familiar with Will Ferrell's work. 
it, it is interesting to me that it just completely like. How could you say you're not familiar with like, Will Ferrell's work? Like, I mean, you guys are naming off a bunch of these like, numbers. Some of the '90s comedians we probably wouldn't have been like. Our upbringing was Will Ferrell's prime. Will Ferrell and Adam Sandler yeah, were like from the 2000 to 2000. movie stars that were comedians during our. But 2000 to 2010 were still some really popular Will Ferrell he was films. Like four. Yeah, 2000 to 2010. You're talking about from when I was uh, in diapers up until I was ten, which would have been like fourth or fifth grade. That's like Talladega Nights. Oh, I've that was a that good sports. That was that a good one. sports film. Um, that that range of things for him. I mean, he's. It was amazing. I've yeah. seen Talladega Nights. I've seen Step Brothers. The so you Will, are familiar with Will Ferrell's work. I, I know, but like, I know some, like, some of his movies. Like the ones that you just named off, Like I had no idea what you were talking about. Night at the Roxbury. An all-time forgotten Will Ferrell. Chris Kattan, ladies and gentlemen. Chris Kattan, who had like two, three good films and then just disappeared. Uh, all right. This is the nice remember when. Like, go back to talking about sports. Coming up next, the is, there, is there a scenario in which Matthew Liberator forces the Cardinals' hand? We'll talk about it here on 101 ESPN. If you ain't first, you're last. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. If he has another good one and somebody else struggles in this rotation, I give Libby a nod pretty soon. Matthew Libertor is throwing the hell out of the ball at Triple A. He's got two starts. He hasn't given up a run. I think he's punched out 14. Like he's looking very good. Uh, so maybe, and, and Woodford would be the one that you look at that is an interchangeable piece right now as he kind of took on, on for Wayno. But this rotation is going to need some reinforcements. That was Brad Thompson yesterday on the fast lane talking about the possibility of Matthew Liberator forcing his way into the Cardinals rotation alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks. And I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Alex, he's not the only one that's talking about Matthew Liberator and getting excited about what we've seen from Libby to start this season. This comes from Baseball America. They say the Cardinals number four prospect reminded everyone over his first couple starts why he was so highly touted coming out of the draft in 2018. After consecutive underwhelming seasons, Libertor started his third season at AAA with two impressive outings, going five scoreless innings and striking out seven in each start. He was up to 97 miles an hour with his fastball and upped his curveball usage, which led to 13 swinging strikes against the curveball over the last two starts. Libertor could be in line for a promotion sooner rather than later. So that comes from Baseball America, who watches all of these games down in the minor leagues. Alex, what scenario do you think there is, if any, in which Matthew Liberator forces his way into the Cardinals' big league rotation? I mean, it's the scenario that BT painted. One more struggle, and I don't even know if you could call it a struggle, because Jake Woodford, I thought, looked fine in his last start, but... If it's not any better than the last two starts for Jake Woodford, that's how Libertor pushes his way into it for at least one start. And then from there, it's I don't know if there's a scenario that he pushes his way into the rotation where he stays up here, because frankly, you've got all of these guys until somebody gets injured, which we all know is going to happen at some point throughout a season. But when Adam Wainwright returns, that's it. That's all said and done. And you put Matthew Libertor back in the minors. 
But I'm with BT. If Jake Woodford is average in his less start, see what Libby's got. Because the guy showcasing, he's got the strikeout stuff in AAA. And what have we been talking all about with this Cardinals rotation? You just don't have a lot of it. I, I don't see a harm in seeing what he's got for one start. Yeah, I don't either. I, I think it's kind of twofold. Libertor's on the mound tonight for Memphis. I, I think he's got to have another good outing. And then it just comes down to what's Jake Woodford when he starts again uh, against Pittsburgh. So, I, I again, I don't. Th- I kind of agree with Alex. I can't see a spot in which it's like, hey, Libby's in the rotation for the right. rest of the year, unless there's injuries. But I, I think if Woodford struggles, I, I think you do call up Matthew Libertor. He showed. Ali has talked about you know how much the team loves seeing guys go work on something in the off season that when they have their end of season meeting, hey, we need you to work on this to improve upon it. And if he sees it in spring training, they really like that. I mean, they saw it with uh, Nolan Gorman laying off high fastballs in the zone. Libertor was basically work on the fastball command. See if he can get a little bit more uptick in that and also get right-handed batters out. And so far, he's done all that. He did that in spring training, and he's done it in his first two outings in AAA. So I think if Woodford struggles, I do think they'll just make the simple move. They'll call up Matthew Libertor, and they'll send down Jake Woodford, and they'll see what he looks like. And then if he pitches well, and when Wayno comes back, I think Libertor all of a sudden becomes kind of that sixth man. So when there is an injury, instead of going back to Jake Woodford, you go to Matthew Libertor because he's leapfrogged him in the depth chart. I think that's probably the way that this goes, but... I guess that the one hesitancy that I have with all of this is it, it is such a limited role in terms of how long he would be up here to the at the big league level. I think the overwhelming likelihood is, in a best-case scenario for Libertor, you get one, maybe two starts. Because it doesn't sound like it's that far away for Adam Wainwright. And if Waino is coming back sooner rather than later, well then... How much are you really going to be able to see Matthew Libertor? I, I think he'll get one or two starts, and you've got a string of a lot of games in a row coming up here in the not-too-distant future, too. So maybe they decide to go to a six-man rotation for, for a little while. Maybe that's possible, but we know Wayno doesn't want to do that. We know a lot of the veterans in this rotation don't really want to do that. You could see him next Wednesday. Like a week from today, would it shock me if Libertor is getting that start for Woodford? No. Would it shock me if he's then getting the start a following week against like San Francisco? No, I think that's probably about it though. What we're seeing from Liber, excuse me, I'm getting it's, emotional it's, just it's thinking about it. He has been really good. What we're seeing from Libertor, I think, matters more for 2024 than it does for 2023. I was just going to mention that. That's that's why I don't really have an issue, even if it is just honestly one start or two, because I can see what he looks like against major league talent. Because Yes, spring training, he was good, but I can't remember who he was facing. And there's a chance most of the lineup was minor leaguers that he was facing. Woodford was awesome in spring training, too. Yeah, and in AAA, you're not seeing major league level players. You're seeing top prospects. Maybe you're seeing a guy on rehab assignment, but you're not seeing the the best of the best. And that's why, even if it is just one start, I want to see what he looks like. Because I've I've saw I've seen him start in the major leagues. And what I saw of the old Libertor, if, if this is a new version of him and he's better, more improved... It was not very good. So I, I do want to see what he looks like because I do think if he can show whatever amount of starts it is he gets this season and what limited opportunities he gets this season, I do think he can showcase, hey, I deserve to have my name thrown in the hat for the 2024 plans in the rotation. I thought Woodford was going to do that coming out of spring training. And, and I, I don't disagree with what Alex said where I don't think Woodford's been bad. I think he's running into some bad luck. But I, I, I don't think he's shown enough to where it's like, okay, yeah, Woodford's in our 2024 rotation. No, I, I just don't think so. I don't think there's much of a future for Woodford. He's average, and I just think you need more than that if you're going to be opening this World Series window that they're hoping for. I I would definitely want them to give him an opportunity before Wayno comes back because I do find that there's 
there's impact in giving somebody like Matthew Libertor another taste this season with his new stuff and then sending them back to the minors and saying, all right, keep working on it. Because before this season ends, I believe there should be an extended look at Matthew Libertor. So you do know what he's got for next season. So whether it be an injury pops up or you go to a six-man rotation or maybe somebody's just not performing and you give them a little bit of time off, Libertor should get a string of opportunities because you can't go into the offseason with uncertainty of, oh, Matthew Libertor's in Memphis and he's been dealing, and I know you've done it in the past, but I'd like to see it with a string at the major league level. One final bit, bit of news to pass along. This comes from Derek Gould. If Lars Newbar completes his workout today, which will include swings against a pitching machine and recovers well. Sounds like he could join Class AA Springfield as soon as tomorrow night to begin his rehab assignment. So it looks like Lars Newtbar is very close to a return, as long as everything goes according to plan, uh, based on what Derek Gould is hearing at the ballpark today. So he would be going on a rehab assignment. He would be going down to Springfield. I think they typically do that because it's closer, which means that he would potentially be available as soon as this weekend maybe uh probably more likely next week against Arizona would be my guess I think you basically have a five game period right now where you've got to decide what you want to do with this outfield mix and that might include Taylor Motter I don't know what they're going to decide to do maybe that's playing into the decision making today of let's get Motter out there let's see what he can do against this right-handed pitcher in Urena and if he performs well whether it's today or this weekend Maybe he earns himself a spot. I think that's silly, but whatever. Um, If he doesn't, maybe this is kind of his last opportunity. And they say, you know what? makes more sense for us to get Juan Yepes more at-bats. And the guy that's going to lose that roster spot is is Motter. If they do that, it's, it's a lot of outfielders on this team. A lot of potential DHs that are on this team as well. But hey, man, it, it, that's the best players. I, I think in the past there have been a lot. There's been a lot of criticism of, about the Cardinals not having their best players on the big league roster. If they decide to send down Motter, there's no criticism of that anymore. You would then have your best players available to you on the big league club. They brought Jordan Walker on the opening day roster. They would at that point have Juan Yepes in a bench role capacity. Like you've got some real options here for the big league club. I hope that's the way that they decide to go. I can't decide if I'm trying to will this into existence or if this is what I actually want. Congrats on your new extension. Yeah, I think you're willing it into existence because I'm not sure they're going to do it. Also, what happens when DeYoung's ready? That is the part that I'm... That's the part that I'm really fascinated about because I I think they just view Modder as a filler at this point. I know they're starting him today. I do think it is kind of... I I think the Modder start today is more of, okay, is he going to be our Paul DeYoung this year rather than bringing back Paul DeYoung because if Paul DeYoung's not hitting... Palm Beach pitching and then striking out three times to AAA. It's hard to convince yourself a swing was fixed in the small sample size that you've seen. Uh, but I, I think Modder's more of just a filler. But I like the way you're trying to will this into I existence. I hear what you're both saying, but you're all wrong. Coming up next, some NFL quick hitters here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. <laughs> Tanner Hendricks and I'm Brandon Kylie. We'll talk to Chris Kerber, the voice of the blues coming up here in about 10 minutes or so. But right now let's dive into some NFL quick hitters. Guys, did you see the latest with the Aaron Rodgers saga? That seems like it'll never end. Oh, did he go back into darkness? Nope. Uh, David Bakhtiari was on Bussin' with the Boys podcast. 
he floated the idea that the Packers could choose to pay Aaron Rodgers not to play. David Bakhtiari, if you're not familiar with his work, he's the left tackle for the Green Bay Packers. His best interest would be that, you know, they get something in return for Aaron Rodgers this year, so his team is quite a bit better. Whoa, shots at Jordan Love. He believes that uh, the Packers could choose to just pay him not to play if the Jets won't give the Packers what they're looking for. Alex, this is why all along I've been confused by the people that say, oh, well, the Jets have all the leverage here. The Packers are screwed, blah, blah. Really? At the beginning of free agency, I think there was a case to be made there. Because at that point, the money that you are currently spending on Rodgers, you could reallocate to the players that are available via free agency. Free agency has dried up. There's not very many good players that remain available via free agency. So that cap space that you're opening up by trading Aaron Rodgers, it really helps you next year. And if you did this next year, you also alleviate a lot of those cap space concerns. So at this point, there's no real urgency on the Packers part to get this deal done today. Doesn't really change much for them in 2023. Meanwhile, the Jets don't have a starting quarterback. Well, they do in Zach Wilson. So like, which of those two teams feels like it has the leverage? It to me seems pretty obvious. And then, oh, by the way, the backdrop to all of that. Do you see the Jets general manager was doing a fan event the other day? And when asked if Aaron Rodgers is going to be a Jet, said at the end, yeah, he'll be here eventually. I think he was pretty, uh, he had had a few man sodas. Eventually. Yeah. That, uh, boy, the Jets are screwed. I, I, where do they select in the draft? Do they select in a spot this year that they could draft a quarterback? The Jets? Yeah. No. So they're, because my only thought process is the draft will tell you everything you need to know about Aaron Rodgers, because if you select a quarterback or try and trade up to get a quarterback, then you're moving on from him. I don't think, I think they, their plan is to get Aaron Rodgers. But if. I think that Aaron Rodgers will be a Jet by week one. I also think that the Jets are fooling themselves if they think they have leverage in this spot. I don't know. You're going to eventually have to give in to the demands of Green Bay. Yeah, but you have to. But will they? Uh, The Jets, I mean, they seem pretty stubborn on this side of things of saying, like, well, we're not going to give that up for Aaron Rodgers. We'll stick with Zach Wilson. There is a deadline for the Jets. There is not for the Packers, but there is for the Jets. Week one. Honestly, by the start of training camp. And if I'm the Packers, cool. I'll keep Aaron Rodgers and not play him unless you meet my demands. And that's what I'm saying. I think that the Jets right now, it is really easy to be stubborn because what are you missing out on? Aaron Rodgers missing out on OTAs the way that he always misses out on OTAs. So it doesn't change anything for him. He showed up for a new team. Yeah. Okay. He's got an offensive coordinator that he knows. He ain't showing up. If he, as long as he's there by like the second week of training camp, he doesn't even need to play in the preseason. As long as he's there by about the second week of training camp, he's going to be your starting quarterback. He'll be fine. In that system that he knows. For the Packers, there's no urgency. I'm good. So once they get to about the second week of, of training camp, if they have not at that point gotten a deal done, I would be shocked, absolutely shocked, if the Jets are not at that point willing to make the deal with the Packers just, and, and giving whatever is necessary. It just to get seems it like it's going to become more expensive for the Jets once you get beyond the draft and get closer to the, the opening of OTAs and training well, camp. Why does anything change? The, the Packers know they've got them over the barrel. Like Nothing changes for them in terms of because the need. They have a need now. They have a need then. But to me, you're trading uncertainty then when it comes to that 2024 first round pick, because yeah, you might be good that one year and trading that away, which is a late pick. But if Aaron Rodgers is retiring after this year, now you're back to square one and you've traded away assets. 
I, I, I don't think, think it changes anything. Yeah, no. I think you just know you sign up for that kind of risk when you admit that, hey, we're going after Aaron Rodgers. I mean, the <laughs> moment the guy said on uh, the Pat McAfee show, I was close to retiring, was the moment you went, oh, crap. Well, I guess we've already locked ourselves into this. So, yeah, I, I, I don't see how much changes, but I, I'm fascinated to know if this deal gets done before the draft or if it waits till after because I, I would What would be think- your guess today for both of you guys? I, I lean almost towards after. I would think if it was going to get done before the draft, it would already be done. Yeah. I'm the same way. I think it's after the draft. I think it gets done after the draft as well. I, I don't think that they want to include their 13th overall pick. Agreed. I think that's part of this is the Jets are saying, we're not including that one. If you guys want a future first round pick, we'll give you that because we think it's going to be for the Jets later than this year's 13th overall pick because at that point you've got Aaron Rodgers. And so, yeah, you expect to be pick, picking in the 20 when he's your quarterback. So I I think what eventually happens is the Jets say, hey, we'll give you a 2024 first round pick so long as we make the playoffs this year. And if we don't make the playoffs, it's a second round pick. And then in 2025, we'll give you a second round pick. And if Aaron Rodgers is still on the roster at that point in time, then it becomes a first round pick. Something like that, where it's like conditional first or second round picks, depending on what the team does, depending on what Aaron Rodgers decides to do. That's my guess. I'd agree with that, because I think all the reporting is that the Jets do want to add something to Rodgers' retirement, because the moment he retires is immediately when they're back to square one of where they're at right now, not having a quarterback. So the other guy that is back in the news is DeAndre Hopkins. Oh, what's he up to? He's skipping OTAs for the Arizona Cardinals. This is not a surprise. It's optional. He's not getting fined or anything. It's not the mandatory uh, mini camp for them. Jonathan Gannon, who we're all big fans of, the shoo, 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 shoo shots. That guy, he said... Uh, <laughs> I've been in communication with D-Hop. I want to do what's best for him and for us at the same time. When he's ready to be here, he'll come here and he'll improve his game as well. DeAndre Hopkins ain't going to be a Cardinal this year. I'm pretty confident in that. Where do you guys think he ends up? And do you think he's traded or cut before he ends up there? I think he'll be cut. But how does the Arizona... Now I'm I'm debating myself. How does Arizona cut... DeAndre Hopkins stuff unless he just says I'm not going to show up but then they don't have to pay him right if he's not showing up so easy set there but I don't see anybody meeting the demands that Arizona believes they're going to get a first round pick for DeAndre Hopkins you're lucky to probably get a second round pick for DeAndre Hopkins at this point like I would have assumed coming I think it's super weird the way that teams value veteran free agent or veteran players. players DeAndre Hopkins is an awesome wide receiver absolutely he helps everybody any team that adds him to their t- to their team is going to be better because of it. I think this deal would be done by now if somebody was offering a second round pick. Agreed. I, and I don't understand why teams aren't offering a second round pick. Like Kansas City, what are you doing? Pick up the phone. Go, go get him. Go get DeAndre Hopkins and add him to your receiver core that right now has Kadarius Tony and a bunch of question marks on it. And Kadarius Tony himself is a massive question mark because he stays healthy for like three games a year. Add this guy, who's a future Hall of Famer, potentially, depending on how people view the PED thing. I think he's going to be a Patriot. I think he's going to be a Chief. Do you? Mm-hmm. I just can't see him being a Patriot because of the Bill O'Brien connection. That, that's the only reason I'm hesitant on that. I, I Somebody still said, think, should Baltimore trade for Hopkins? No, they got I, OBJ. OBJ's better. I mean, it'd be a heck of a tandem of OBJ and DeAndre Hopkins. That's one way to make Lamar saw, Jackson happy. I saw a mock draft, too, that had Baltimore selecting that Quentin Johnson, that guy that I like sure. from TCU. So, yeah, that, that, uh, that'd be Add a way all to, three of them. That'd be a way to make Lamar Jackson pretty happy. Yeah. I, and pay him. 
I, I still think he gets traded because I think it's better for the Cardinals just to take anything rather than just cutting him because you get nothing in return by cutting him minus cap space. And like for them, that means nothing at this point because free agency is dried up. I Would Pittsburgh be a team that you have interest in seeing Hopkins going to? For some reason, they're the team I keep like highlighting as, oh, hey, if they had this, they'd be a I think he'd get better. a quarterback. He feels like I, a stealer. I, I like Kenny Pickett. I, I'm not saying he's going to be a top five quarterback in the league, but I, I think he can fall into that like middle portion of quarterbacks in the NFL. Get him a wide receiver like DeAndre Hopkins. I, I think he'd be a great fit there. They're the team that, again, like I said, they're just the team I've started circling like, oh, hey, that linebacker table. Oh, how about Pittsburgh? <laughs> Pittsburgh look really cool I like here. Buffalo, too. Buffalo would be really Buffalo interesting. Buffalo makes all the sense in the world. Buffalo would be really Buffalo, good. Buffalo, Kansas City, Baltimore, those teams that are vi- – I don't think the Chargers make sense I was because just they, they just the need speed. They need speed on the outside. Um, but those teams that are vying for the top spot right now in the AFC, it's an arms race in that conference. The Cincinnati Bengals have all the wide receivers you could possibly ask for. Every other team in that mix, though, they could probably use somebody to the, be a part of their offense. What if the Raiders got them? Just Devontae Adams and DeAndre Hopkins? Having the ball thrown to them by good old Jimmy G. It'd be a lot of fun. <laughs> be fun. All right, coming up next... We're talking to Chris Kerber, the voice of the Blues here on 101 ESPN. Want to get his thoughts on the final two games of the regular season tonight. The home finale here in St. Louis. We'll talk to Kerbs next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks and I'm Brandon Kylie. It's a big night here in St. Louis as the Blues are finishing out their season at home against the Dallas Stars. Chris Kerber will be on the call. Alex Ferrario, of course, has your pregame coverage starting right here on 101 ESPN at 530. And Chris Kerber joins us now via the 101 ESPN hotline. Kerbs, we appreciate the time. As always, my man, how you doing today? Brandon, I'm doing well. It, it's a little weird. It's, it's been so long since we've gone into a game knowing the finality of that game, isn't it? I mean, uh, yeah, you've faced elimination in playoffs and stuff, but from a regular season standpoint, it's been since 2011 that, that we felt this way. It's really, it's really something else. It's nuts. And you look around the Western Conference and Curbs, I'm, I'm sure you've probably done some of this as well. I look at like Winnipeg and Calgary and Nashville, the teams that were still kind of in it up until the end. It wasn't that far away for the Blues this year, even with them being as up and down as they were. If they just simply don't have those horrible losing stretches early in the season, they might have been able to find a way back into this thing, even in what was a down year. Couldn't agree with you more. You know, the, the reality of it was is going into, I think, two games ago, they were only eight points out of a playoff spot, four wins. Now it's 14. Winnipeg's gone on a three-game win streak, and, and, it, and it's, it's 14 points, which, and that's a lot. But that's seven games. And so, so the question is, is can you be going into next year, and that's 95 points, can, can, you, can you factor the, and figure out that you might be seven games better? Can, can you just get better defensively to help you win seven games and there's a difference in the playoffs or not? Now, I think there's a big difference between just the playoffs and winning a championship and being a championship-caliber team. But, again, that's that's a stepping stone. And when we talked to David Perron in Detroit, he said something. You don't hear many players talk like this. But he looked at Detroit, and he says, look, our goal 
we, we may miss the playoffs again, but our goal is we've got to get to a certain point number. We've got to get to 80-something because he goes, it's, it's harder to get to 95 from 75 than it is to get from 85 to 95. And when, when you look at it that way, he's right. So, um, yeah, it, it, it just it just didn't, it was one of those seasons that just didn't click well and the consistency never seemed to get there, and, that, and that's unfortunate. Speaking of Detroit Curbs, uh, there still is some jockeying going on and some impact in these final few games for the Blues and with Detroit and Vancouver in terms of draft positioning. And I know some Blues fans don't want to talk about that, but, I mean, right now you're sitting in 11th place spot with 8th still up for grabs. Well, so the, the positives and the negatives of it, right? I mean, that's the positives of a, of a bad season is you have to look at it that way. Um, the good news is with Ottawa winning the other night, the Blues have locked into finishing at worst with the 11th overall pick. Now, that's the good news because that gives you even that if you finish there a 3% chance of winning the draft lottery. It has happened. And if you do win that draft lottery, they would jump up to the first overall pick. And and the way the draft lottery works and that's going to be on May 8th is they take they they basically the top 2 spots are up for grabs or a team can move up. Any team that misses the playoffs can move up 10 spots. So back in 2017, for example, the Stars went from 13th to third right so or well 12th to third in the way you look at it like that so the, the reality of it is that could happen so may 8th will be a really fascinating day from a blues standpoint uh but they are going to get a high draft pick it's going to be the highest that they have picked since uh since taking alex petrangelo eighth overall the blues have proven to be very good with their first round draft picks for the most part especially with some of the picks they've had around 19 and 20 and uh and so i think that that's an exciting part of it and there's Listen, there's still some – these two games are huge for the Dallas Stars to go back-to-back. They could still win the division. And, and that avoids a matchup with either Winnipeg or Minnesota and also home, uh, home ice is up for grabs for them. So I expect some intensity in these two games. Uh, Curbs, when you look at what the Blues have done over their last last month, really, it's about 17 games, 10-5-2 and two overall. What have you learned about this team in that stretch? Well, I'm glad to see it because it means they're playing for pride. Means they're playing for, uh, you know, for for, for what's important. Uh, I I think they've look. I, I was funny. I was talking talking to a guy uh, that lives down in Dallas earlier today that um, used to coach hockey and, and and knows the game extraordinarily well. And one of the things we were talking about was you you just look at the weight of this season and with the ups and downs, knowing that you had those three key unrestricted free agents. The human side of this, it wasn't just as the trade deadline approach. I mean, it was a month and a half, two months before, where guys are playing and wondering, geez, you know, what's going to happen? And, and, and there's the human side of it. So I think what we've seen in the last month is that cloud clear. And they're like, okay, this is what we have. And, and, and they've played better because of it. So um, whether that's a, a shot, whether that's a, a good thing, a negative, I don't, I don't know. It's hard to sometimes put all that into perspective, but um, – I think what you've seen is the infl- – I think coming in, I think Veron and Kapanen have brought some skill to the lineup. You know, he had skill with Tarasenko and O'Reilly, so I'd, I'm not saying that those guys are more skilled than those other two, but they brought some speed. Uh, there's just – you know, the, the cloud lifted on Braden Shen, you know, with his buddies getting getting dealt out. Things like those kind of stuff all play into it, and, uh, and I think why you're having it. Plus, one other thing, and I don't think we can underestimate this, and this is why I, I – I pause to take too much from the end of this season as a vibe for next season because you've been playing now for a month and a half with no pressure on you. Yeah, the playoffs aren't on the line. Uh, first place isn't on the line. Home ice isn't on the line. 
really there's nothing on the line but going out and playing. And, and I think that sometimes that's why those teams are so dangerous to play against. Curbs, final one for me. We heard Berube yesterday on the fast lane talk about Kyrou and Thomas going into next season, and he talked about the next step for them is just taking on a, a larger leadership role. Do you see those two, and I know Thomas has kind of already been in that spot, but do you see those two taking on that role next season? Yeah, but I think he, I do. They have no choice. They have to. But the question is, how do you define that leadership? Are you defining it by vocality in the room? Are you defining it by, you know, a letter on your chest? Or are you defining it by coming into camp uh, in the best possible shape of anybody in camp? Uh, that's something Kyrou's actually done really, really well. Uh, they, they, coaches have talked a lot about this, like from a, a physicality standpoint, him being in shape, which is great. Uh, but then it's, it's the work ethic and what you're doing day in, day out. Are you putting the extra work on the ice to get better? Are you taking... You know, are you on the ice for an optional skate when to get better and to show the other players on the team, to show the young guys how to do things? Are, are you doing that kind of stuff? And I, and I think when they're talking leadership, they're really talking about the, like, like coming in and leading by example in terms of what it takes to be a winner. And, and I think it's more of that than it is the vocality in the room, a letter on the chest or something along those kind of lines. So for me, it's how you define that the term leadership, which is uh, shown in many different ways. He's Chris Kerber, the voice of the Blues. You'll hear him tonight in the final Blues home game of the season. Blues versus the Stars. Alex has your pregame coverage tonight, starting on 101 ESPN at 530. Kerbs, we appreciate the time. As always, man, enjoy yourself tonight at Enterprise one more time for the regular season. We'll talk with you again next week to recap everything that we saw over the course of this full season. All right, guys, have, have an awesome day. Uh, Tom Stillman is actually going to sit in for the second half of the first period with us tonight. So uh, we'll, we'll have a good talk with the Blues chairman at that point, too. Looking forward to that. That's Chris Carver, voice of the Blues here on 101 ESPN. Appreciate him hopping on with us as always. Alex, I saw earlier today, it looks like Joel Hofer is expected to get the start for the Blues tonight, and they'll go to Jordan Bennington tomorrow for the finale, or finale of this regular season. I'm excited to see Hofer one more time. I, I will say, like, it does kind of feel like they're, you know, playing out the string here because that's where we're at in this season. But Joel Hofer showed some stuff when he got his first opportunity, first real opportunity in the NHL level. Uh, there was one bad game. We all know didn't go well for him, but he's going to be your backup goalie next year. They signed him to that contract for a reason. And next year it's going to be Benner and Hofer and net. I want to see what he looks like one last time against a real team that has like Stuff on the line. Dallas wants to continue winning down the stretch. Yeah, well, and that's the biggest thing. I mean, the most impressive game for Joel Hofer was the the Winnipeg Jets when he shut them out, and that was an all-around good game, not just Joel Hofer. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, the last start that he had didn't go as planned. You're taking on a desperate Dallas team. I don't expect them to sit any of their starters tonight or tomorrow. I mean, tonight they're playing their backup goaltender and Scott Wedgwood, who's been good for them, and then tomorrow it's Jake Ottinger. But like Curbs mentioned, this team's fighting for home ice the first two rounds if they can get first place in the central so they're going to be bringing it as best as any team Joel Hofer has seen but look Joel Hofer has been one of the most dominant goaltenders in the American Hockey League this season I remember talking to Ryan Smith earlier this year the play-by-play man and he said I would be very surprised if I saw Joel Hofer suit up for the Springfield Thunderbirds at all next season so this is your guy and let's see how the Blues look where they've had extended time off taking on a Dallas Stars team and what Joel Hofer looks like against this high-powered offense that I believe has scored the most six-goal games in the National Hockey League.
that's uh, doesn't that's bode well for this defense. Uh, coming up next, we're going to hit the BK and Ferrario rewind with the guy in the mound for the Cardinals today. Are we evaluating him in Colorado? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's run it back with a daily rewind on BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Stewart's American Mortgage. Google the bagel loan. Featuring zero fees and zero closing costs. Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. If you've missed anything from today's show, be sure to check it out on the podcast page, 101ESPN.com, and the free 101 ESPN app is where you can go to find it. It's all presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. Cardinals back in action coming up here in just about 10 minutes or so. They'll have Jack Flaherty on the mound. And Alex, that's where I want to end today's show before we get you guys over to the fast lane. When you look at Jack today, in Coors Field, we've seen what it's looked like for the first couple of starts for the Cardinals. How are you evaluating the start for him? I mean, I'm definitely not evaluating in like how many runs he gives up in this outing because it's Colorado. We all know how this goes. I think the only way that I'm evaluating Jack Flaherty is the walks, is the command. Is it there or are you still lacking that? I mean, again, Jack Flaherty, we talked about it with Miles Michaelis. I just looked it up. A 5.50 ERA. Or no, that's not the ERA. Where's his ERA at, at Coors Field? It's not good, essentially, for Jack or for Jack Flaherty. So I, it's going to be the command more than anything for him. No, I lied. It's 1.96 ERA at Colorado. All right, so he pitches today, well. Boys, so frankly, back. if you How give up, games? if you get uh, 18 and a third innings, and oh. he's given up four earned runs and 22 strikeouts. Okay. All right, I changed my tone. If Jack Flaherty stinks at Colorado today, I'm done with this guy. Uh, I I'm gonna be I agree with Alex not the not that last part but the the walks the the command is the thing that I'm looking for today because he's probably not gonna have his best slider today because it's just not gonna move well in that thin air up in Colorado the thing I the so thing I'm looking for there. is just the command of the fastball does he have command of the fastball and is it sitting where it should like it did in his last start. If he doesn't have command of the fastball, I'm going to have concerns. If I think he's got command of the fastball, but he does get hit around today, I'm not too concerned because it is Colorado. You have to look at this start with like a magnifying glass and really just pick out his command because even a great start in Colorado can lead to, as Jim Leland told us earlier on the show, which check out the podcast page if you miss it, 101ESPN.com. It's like seven earned runs. So it's just the command of the fastball for me. That's the only thing that I am looking for in today's game. Hey, Alex. Yeah, buddy. Those games weren't in Colorado. Oh, are they against Colorado? <laughs> it was just against Colorado, so <laughs> just all I saw. Right, good to know he's good against. Well, them. and I looked at the ERA too, and it popped up slow, and it was the uh, his batting average against Colorado, which also hasn't happened for. I think it was a his few walk, years. Or, uh, strikeouts walk rate is what you were looking at there. Um, he he has never played in Colorado. This is going to be his first time. D- don't bounce back, Scott. 
card for Jack Flaherty. Frankly, don't that means he's got much. a zero ERA in Colorado. So. Just, just don't expect too much. Don't make this the end-all, be-all for Jack Flaherty. If it goes well, it means that he's back. If it goes poorly, it doesn't mean anything. We'll talk to you guys about that tomorrow here on 101 ESPN. If you ain't first, you're last. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.